0: I don't like designing asymmetric games. I think that in terms of design principles, they're extremely expensive. Yeah, Like every game is yeah, about sure. a complexity budget and you go to an asymmetric game, you're like, I would like to have the house on the coast. I'm spending all my money on location. Yep. But what you can get out of it is a sense of a world. It's really what you're getting is immersion and you're getting a sense that the world is a lot bigger. There are more systems at play than the ones that you have direct access to.
1: everybody, this is Soren Johnson and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today we are talking to tabletop designer Cole Worley, best known for his work on Root, Oath, Pax Premier, and John Company. This episode was recorded on March 22nd, 2023 and was engineered by Michael Hermes. Alright, so I think a good place to start would be like when... Were the first time? When was the first time that you remember kind of a board game, like mattering to you?
0: Mm. We. I grew up in a family with a lot of kids. I've got four younger siblings, and my parents loved play. They were not obsessed with it, but they just. You know, my, my dad would play make-believe with all of us. He taught us how to play sports really young. Right. And if it was rainy, it meant we were playing board games. Okay. And so I think some of my first games that I remember playing with him were games of Stratego. Okay. And there, I think that there were some early games of Stratego that I remember thinking about the game after it was over. Right. And that was like, the. I mean, those are some of my first game memories where we're thinking about, you know, I'm like on the, like writing or walking to school in first, first grade maybe um, and I' am just thinking about Stratego deployments right just sort of like hanging in the back of my mind a little bit
1: yeah Stratego is kind of unusual because um, you can put so much pre-processing into the game right yeah. you can spend a lot of time thinking about exactly the right way to, to set everything up um, and uh, you know it's always kind of cool to play a game that has that, that aspect um, yeah it's, it's a game that you can talk about when you're not playing right
0: but it isn't as hard to talk about as something like chess right uh, there's just a clearer clear
1: terms right okay um, so what other like what other games do you remember that kind of stood out as you as you got older
0: yeah so i you know we kept playing board games and then uh, when i was sometime in elementary school my i had a, an older uncle um who was about 15 years older than my dad and he had found this box of old war games that he had played growing up. Right. And these are Avalon Hill games from the 60s and 70s mostly, and they were all woefully incomplete. So he gave me a oh, box geez. that had Chattanooga, Tactics to a few other games, Chancellorsville. Maybe it was Chancellorsville, not Chattanooga. Yeah, yeah, not Chattanooga, Chancellorsville. And I remember that the pieces of Chancellorsville like include some pieces from Napoleon at Waterloo. Like they were all just helplessly <laughs> mixed, mixed up, together. And I remember trying to play those games with some of my friends and having no idea how they worked, um, I didn't know how a combat results table. Where I hadn't learned ratios yet, really, okay. in any meaningful way. And so we, we'd sat there trying to decode these combat results tables and saying, like, okay, there's a one through six. So I guess maybe we have to roll a die, or maybe if I have six units, that's what that means. Right. And I remember. So
1: like, you you, you had the manual, but you didn't have like the. The, the, basic yeah. math school well, skills to like understand was going on. And,
0: and even the manuals were m- missing page. I mean, they were, right, was, yeah. they, these were these were games that should have probably been thrown away a long time ago. <laughs> but I remember one of my first misreads of the cover results table was we, 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 took the, we took the leftmost column and we thought, oh, that's the number of units that you have. So if you have six units, you're in that top column. Okay. And then when the ratios, you know, the ratios were often expressed as uh, dashes. Yeah, and so we were like, oh, like a one two. That's like one, one to two. One versus so that, two. Yeah, yeah, one versus two, or maybe it's a roll of one or two on a die. So we always had these, these different ways of uh, of sorting through it, and then we started puzzling it through in middle school, where I remember I was I had found a copy of Third Reich at a garage sale, and most of the games. Who
1: were you, who were you playing? Were you playing with your brother? I was or? playing with my brother
0: and w- w- with w- with some neighborhood friends. Okay. Um, and, you know, most of the games that I experienced, but, and this is true both of video games and of board games, they were mostly things that we, like, found in the garbage or garage sales wow, and yep. just sort of, like, piecing, piecing together. Uh, we, we used to have a, a ritual where on the garbage day was Wednesday, and so on Tuesday night I'd, well, I'd be roaming around the neighborhood with my friends, and we would just kind of rummage through. If we found, like, an old computer, like, laying on the side of the street, we'd take it back right. and boot it up.
1: Where was this, by the way? Uh,
0: I grew up mostly in Fort Wayne, Indiana, so okay. in n- northwestern Indiana, yep. Rust Belt. Okay. Um, and every once in a while you'd you'd hit the the jackpot I remember we found an old 386 that had all six episodes of Wolfenstein on it. Wow! And it was like this was like the, the motherload, and I was I was putting yeah, it on every. Just everybody. sitting on the street. It was just sitting on the street. I mean, it was, the computer was in disrepair. I think we got to boot up three times. Wow. We might have had to swap. How power many supply. computers
1: did you sort through before you found? Oh, one we that, had like- so
0: many. Uh, one of my friends wow. uh, had a had a dre- an old dresser uh, in in his room that was just filled with old computer parts that we yeah. you know, were finding, and and board games were the, were the same process. We found our, our old copies of Hero Quest. Uh huh. Um, and then, you know, at the, towards the end of elementary school, I started playing Dungeons and Dragons with, with my brother. And again, we didn't, I didn't know what Dungeons and Dragons was supposed to be like. I just liked the idea that there was a dragon on the cover. It seemed exciting. Right. And so we were really just playing these games completely incorrectly for the first, yep. you know. I mean, it was really, I think, until probably Battlecry, uh, Richard Borg's Battlecry, mm-hmm. was probably the first game that I played by the rules okay. that was a, a more modern Design game, right. um, And then at that point, we started really getting into
1: to board games. Yeah, it was yeah. I some a little older than you, but like I remember also growing, th- you know, growing up through that time period. Uh, I guess this you there might be the, there's the internet, I suppose at this point. Yeah, ish. Yeah, but like you know, but yeah, I don't know if you had game stores around you, but like for me, it was just whatever random game. Like you know, like I found like. A random copy of like a uh, Victory game, Civil War game, mm-hmm. uh, some SPI games, like a CDO in Kharkov, but it was just stuff that was like ran in the back of some secondhand store. There was like, there was no game store. Like, you'd, you'd I'd open these boxes and you'd see like the SPI catalog and, it, yeah. and you'd flip through it and you'd be like, oh wow, look at all these games. But at that point, I think SPI was like out of business anyway. So, right. you know, it was no one like,
0: was going to pick up the tip line. Yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 it's like, you know, there was this whole like world of war gaming, but like, you know, I barely had anyone to play with me and any way to find these games. And it was just kind of like this, but it was this fast. It, it was just like, I could tell that like, oh, this, this, is, this is something that could be for me.
0: There, there were two little game stores um, in the, the strip mall near my house. One of them was a computer store called Computer Corner. Uh-huh. And at the computer store, they had all these old PC games. But the guy who ran the store would never discount anything. Okay. And so what happened was the older stock just stayed there. Uh-huh. And we only had, you know, trash computers, basically. And I remember like saving up my money for like a $60 copy of Ultima 5 or Ultimate wow. Domain, who at that, at that point, that game would have been eight years old, yep. 10 years old. Um, but I was just looking for things that had three and a half inch discs. And I, I wasn't aware that I was, I was buying something that was probably worth $5 uh, if eBay had been around then. And then there was this little comic book store that called Books, Comics and Things that stocked board games. And I remember I bought um, one of the first war games I ever bought was a copy of Wooden Ships and Iron Men, mm-hmm. which I I played to death. And it, and it was just sitting, I mean, it was sitting next to Batman graphic novels, basically, right. you know, in, in the way that actually, I, I lo- even now, you, if you go, um, if you're looking for interesting game stores, I always tell people, like, go to go to hobby shops, like places where you'd buy model planes, mm-hmm. because a lot of them ordered board games in the late 90s and early 2000s, yep. and they never sold, and they're often yep. just still City there. Yep. Uh, and you can find really interesting things, um, yep. especially, you know, in the the 90s, it was such a strange period for for board gaming, because a lot of the big wargaming publishers were sort of destroyed by yep. the rise of computer games. You haven't gotten Catan yet in the German invasion. Yep. And so there were just these like little. Basically, you were just looking for things that had been um, that had been sold into distribution as you know Avalon Hill was collapsing. Right. Uh, and so you, you'd find them all over the place, a dollar store, any number of places.
1: Yep. Well, so what what appealed to you about these type of games?
0: I think partly it was that they were doing. They were they were just telling kind of different. Kinds of stories, and there was a the um, I think I, I'm trying to think about wooden ships and iron men because at that point,
1: I, I totally like, remember that game from the catalog. Yeah, and oh, like, and it's like, Ooh, this it's one, awesome. This pretty cool. It's <laughs> so cool.
0: It it has like a like an order like a real time order phase to it, mm-hmm. and then at the start of every round, you can communicate to all of your other players who are playing, and so everybody we would you know have a, a little pencil with a post it on it, and we'd all like raise our flag with our two word message about mm-hmm. what we were trying to do, and then you'd go and resolve all the orders. Um, but I remember looking at that game and thinking um, that I wanted more detail out of something like Battlecry. Battlecry seemed like it wasn't telling the whole story. yep. And when I looked at these older war games, it seemed like they were doing something bigger. Um, right. so there, there was a little bit of a i don't know a kind of there was a little bit of a, of a mystique to them, but it also just had to do with theming. I mean the only games that I had access to at that time. Had pretty like well trodden and boring themes, but yep. a lot of those late war games were all over the place. They were covering everything, you know, from the siege of Jerusalem to yep. you know, any number of other things. Yep. And, um, and and it, and, it, and I, I didn't always love the ones I played. You know, I remember I, I had a copy of, of Diplomacy, which I had read about. You know, mm-hmm. because you know everyone saw you'd find an old copy of, of, of the General, and there'd always be like an essay about diplomacy strategy yep. or something in it. And I remember I, I sat down and played Diplomacy with some friends. And my friends got so upset at the idea that every region could only hold one military unit. <laughs> And they're like, this is ridiculous. You should be able to have two fleets in the Black Sea. I could break, you know, I was thinking about the, the Russian player was like, I could break the Ottomans if I could just have two fleets in the Black Sea. And, uh, and it, it was funny because at that moment, I remember thinking like, well, no, but there's like a reason why right. we're not allowed to do this. Right. And it, it was like that, that edge of starting to understand that there's abstractions happening in these right. designs. You
1: make decisions when you design, yeah. and you're not just trying to represent things. You're right. trying to create a situation, a feeling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Were you, did you try to design some of your own games during this time?
0: I mostly worked on variants uh, to fix things that I, that I wanted in design. So we, we, I used to play a lot of Risk. I played too much Risk. Okay. And... You know, we had we had and when I was in high school, we had like a little risk ladder, basically, where we'd re- record who won. We had a little point wow. system. We, okay. You know, I played probably two or three games of risk a week for. Would it be with the same group? Yep, same same six people. We always played it with six, and we, we found that that risk when you really knew it took an hour. It was very fast. Yeah. And then uh, when I remember when I was in college, I, a friend invited me to play with him, and it was horrible because it took four hours and everybody was bickering at each other. And yeah. Like, These people, they don't understand risk. They <laughs> like essential because we're. we're Risk, to me, boils down to a game where uh, you're trying to make yourself hard to kill. Uh-huh. You're not necessarily trying to eliminate the other players. You're trying to make yourself difficult to eliminate because in the mid-game, it's all about the cascading card turn-ins. Mm-hmm. So if you are localized in one area, someone can just stomp on you, get the cards, and then kind of combo into the end. Right. But if you spread yourself out so that no one player can eliminate you, you'll make it to the, to the end game. But when we were playing Risk, I remember reading... Um, oh, I can't remember. It was some... Some book on the Middle Ages, and I was thinking about systems of vassalage, and I thought, oh, it's a bummer that in Risk, you um, when you d- eliminate a player, they're they're out of the game. Like they should still be in the game, but as like a vassal. <laughs> and so I, I I made these like vassalage rules yeah. for, for Risk. And actually, we, I did something very similar to Diplomacy. Uh, and this is skipping ahead a little bit. But when I was in college, I uh, was at a party, and I, I mentioned that I, I really admired Diplomacy, and it turns out that in the Midwest. Diplomacy was very commonly taught in high school. Really? I don't know wh- how this happened, yeah. but you know, suddenly ha- half the people at this party said, oh, yeah, I played diplomacy in my you know, high school run-up to World War II history class, or World yep. War I history class. And so I, I said, okay, well, let's, let's play diplomacy at my place. And so next week, um, people started showing up for Game of Diplomacy, and the word got out, and I had about 20 people show up yeah. to play Game of Diplomacy, which only plays seven. Right. And so at the last... And really needs...
1: Seven. It really needs exactly. precisely exactly. seven. Yeah.
0: And so at the last moment, um, I, I hatched this kind of absurd um, variant, which I still use and is still my favorite way of playing diplomacy, which is um, you give everybody a supply center. So, you know, you, we have three, we have, if we have three people, if we have 21 players, we'll divide them as evenly as possible sure. among the powers. Right. And then you get a supply center. So if you're a French diplomat, you might get Marseille or Paris or whatever. Sure. Yep. And then when your country, when your capital, so the person who's, who's associated with the capital, they have to turn in the orders. Um, You lower the negotiation phase for the number of players. So the more players, the shorter the negotiation phase is. So then it becomes a question of delegation. You have to say, look, you need to negotiate this, you're responsible for negotiating that, come back here in two minutes to check in, then we'll go back out for a second round. And then whenever your country gets eliminated, uh, so when the the capital falls specifically, uh, whichever new power controls that supply center gets you as a diplomat, and then the negotiations get shorter. Right. So at the end of the game, you have three nations with staffs of six or seven diplomats trying to sort through. And there, there is some, people will, will sell each other out because they want to end up on a certain team for the end game. Right. And it also plays in about three hours because you're, you're continually slow, uh, you know, increasing the, the pace of negotiation. So I was really interested in the political and diplomatic um, – situations that were present in history, but didn't seem to be in games because games had this very romantic, like person as nation, right. as like death match mentality that I was finding in pretty much any strategic level game. And so all the early variants I did were usually about introducing some kind of diplomatic system into a game.
1: Right. We're- I'm trying to remember when, like, social deduction games started appearing. It's not quite the same thing, but it starts to sure. overlap, right?
0: Right, and, we, we played a lot of Mafia. I was, right. I was the one who was, like, constantly introducing Mafia to my high school friends and
1: staying up too late playing it. Right, yeah. Um, okay, um, yeah, Diplomacy is, is a, it, you know, it's, it's a great game. I remember I played it a lot by email, like, mm-hmm. during, I guess, probably the mid-'90s. Sure. Um, the best way to play it, really. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, don't have to worry about long-term ramifications. Sure. Sure. We were playing playing essentially with anonymous people. Um, yeah. But I was surprised how often I ended up finishing the game in a team victory with someone, mm-hmm. you know, where I was like, okay, I guess I could stab them. But, like, I don't know. I kind of feel, right. you know, like you kind of set your own idea of, like, what success is in diplomacy. Like, mm-hmm. you kind of have to. Um, yeah, like
0: almost, I, I almost, I dislike the game when played to the stated victory condition because it gets so like turgid. I right. mean, it's just, it just takes so long to actually get to those 18 supply centers. Yep. And so usually we'd play it to 10 or 12 or something, which, you know, oftentimes meant that the situation wasn't fully re- resolved, but it wasn't worth, you know, the last, the back half.
1: Right. So did, you, did you mod Risk as well?
0: Yeah, so yeah, so it. there there were a lot of a lot of weird risk mods I made around vassalage and like you could have multiple pieces in the same area and I was always, you know, like what was
1: the point of being a vassal?
0: Well, there there wasn't one. It was like I didn't want that kid to go home.
1: Right. Okay. Uh, and
0: so I was just trying to keep people in the game and then there were there were situations where you'd like want to be on the winning team and you could right. tr- be be swapping your vassals around and things like that. And they never, you know, the variants like never really worked in any real way, but I was I was
1: tinkering. Okay. I mean, are there echoes of this? An oath. Like, yeah, for sure. Is this like kind of where no, that I, came
0: I, from? I? I can't. I can't escape it. I mean, it's it's something. I mean, when I was working on Premier and setting up the coalition system, I was thinking about like wanting to find ways for players to work together in, in the space of a game. Uh, and then, you know, when I was in um, when I was in later middle school, kind of going into high school. The, it shifted a little bit because I had a friend who's, who had some relative who was really into like the cutting edge of board games. So whatever game was would win the spiel or yep. had done well at Essen that year, he would send. And so we had, I mean, I started playing Catan really early. Yep. I think, you know, I, I had the, the, the red box, the like really old Mayfair box. So I got Catan very early, uh, had been playing a lot of it. And then also games like Puerto Rico, Princes of Florence, Taj Mahal, the, those were the games that we were playing in high school, and yeah. this was
1: those are good games. You know,
0: two thousand one, yeah. two thousand two, two thousand three. So they are, they were just coming out. Yep. Um And I mean, I think that those games changed. I mean, I, I sort of stopped playing war games. It was just right. We, we would get together and play El Grande three times instead yep. of like playing one long game of Squad Leader or something like that. Yep. Um, and that was that was just what I mean. That was sort of my identity as a as a, as a game
1: player at the yeah. time. Why, um, so why do you think you preferred those games versus the games you played before? they required a lot less uh, setup. And
0: I mean, don't I, I just mean setup in terms of putting pieces on the board. I mean, they were easier to teach. I mean, I remember, you know, I, I had friends who were really into Warhammer. And when we started playing Battlecry, we stopped playing Warhammer because yep. you only needed one copy of Battlecry. Cry. Yep. Uh, and when we would play El Grande, I remember uh, we had, I had this old game called Napoleon in Europe, which I liked quite a bit. And when I got El Grande... Um, I, re- I remember someone saying, "I like that we can play three games of El Grande instead of playing Napoleon." Right, <laughs> and, it, it, and it was it, they were scratching a similar kind of itch, right? We like wanted to compete, um, but the historicity started mattering less, and yep. the actual mechanical framework started mattering a lot more.
1: Right, you started uh, to seeing that you know games are interesting in them themselves, right? Yeah, um, yeah, it was a, it was kind of interesting period. You, you, thinking back, you know, war games is kind of like somewhere between a hobby and a game, mm-hmm. right? Like, you, you know, you're committing to this experience and, you know, I, I, at the time I didn't realize how much you know, friction we were adding, yeah. you know, to get to, uh, you know, something interesting. And it, it feels like there's kind of this weird path now um, of like, okay, people wanted to make games about history and, and battles and, you know, complicated things, right? Which meant they're like, okay, well, we're gonna make a really complicated game. Right? Mm-hmm. And then those got outcompeted by, I don't know, maybe it was the dinosaurs versus the mammals. I don't know, right? right? right. They got out-competed by people who like, no, let's just make a game where it's all about the player experience, mm-hmm. right? And it seems like the next step for board games was like, okay, well, now can we go back and get what we really cared about originally? It was like we wanted games that are actually about something,
0: right? And the term that I had, and this was at, you know, as I was kind of going into, into college, um, was starting to play the games of Martin Wallace. Okay. Uh, and so particularly we played uh, Princes of the Renaissance, Liberté, which is this game about the French Revolution, yep. and then um, Struggle of Empires and Age of Steam. And w- those were the hybrid games that were, that were doing the work of bridging my earlier interest in historical games with a really mechanically robust game. And yeah, right. you know, when I was in, when I was in school, we we had a Sunday group that we would just play like whatever Martin Wallace game we had on right. hand. And so I probably played Age of Steam 50 or 60 times. We were right. always playing Struggle of Empires.
1: So what's like the, what, the, what, which of those games, like, for example, is, would be like the best example? Like, can you talk about that? Through? Yeah,
0: sure. So probably Struggle of Empires. So Struggle of Empires is a game about the kind of long 18th century. And it does a bunch of really incredible things. Um, it's, it's a very tight economic euro, but you have infinite money. It's just as you print more money, you have to take social unrest. At the end of the game, the player who has taken the most unrest can't win, or it's something they can't win. They just take a big scoring penalty. Okay. Uh, And the other thing it does is, I think the 18th century is a really hard period to game because you're dealing with limited wars, which don't fit in a lot. They don't fit cleanly into a lot of game logics. So, like, why did they fight only in this very specific way for these very specific stakes, and then they decided to just stop? And then maybe five years later, they were friends. And Wallace does this by having, uh, Struggle of Empires is built into these three contests, these three periods. And in each, you start with this auction where you spend resources to choose teams, basically. Right. And so you'll say, all right, in the first war, we're gonna have you know France and Austria versus Britain and the Netherlands. And in the second war, like Britain is gonna work with you know, Prussia or Russia or something. and. You, you cre- it creates these very weird alliances because what will happen is as if you're a strong power, your biggest enemy, you want to be on your team with your biggest enemy because you can't hurt them. So if, I, if there's someone who's threatening... Wait, wait,
1: say that again. Oh, you yeah. want to be on the, you're on, the, on the team with your biggest enemy because you can't hurt them? Because
0: if you're on the same team, they can't hurt you and you can't try- hurt, okay. hurt them. So what will happen is the alliances are always extremely asymmetric. You always have these two or three huge powers, a little bit like the Seven Years' War where you've got, you know... France and um, and you know the the greater powers, think Austria, kind of working together, but they're completely dysfunctional because they're at the height of their rivalry. And then the smaller alliances with the smaller nations, they are in positions of weakness, but they are actively collaborating. Um, and the, the result of that is is it creates these like l- lovely limited wars where you're fighting in very narrow. Spaces on the board for very particular stakes, knowing that in a few turns the alliances are going to get sort of rejuggled, and it it, it just sort of creates the feeling of 18th century political history with almost no rules. It's very rule slight.
1: Wow. Okay. Well, that, that sounds very
0: really cool. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's a great game. Underrated. It's an right. underrated Wallace. I think a lot of Wallace's games are. I think they 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 like had their moment, and then he. Had trouble navigating the transition to the Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. You know, he had trouble nav- navigating the, the transition to essentially like the growth of the ind- independent board game publisher. Right. So, even though he was in some respects the first modern independent board game yeah, publisher, right. he, he never made that move quite right. And so, I think his games have, it's not that they've gotten worse, they just don't
1: have the, the position in the spotlight that they once did. Sure, right. Okay. Okay, so when we're, um, maybe let's talk about what you were doing with your life during this this period. So, you know, you're playing a lot of board games. Presumably you're also playing video games. Sure. Um, and, uh, but what what did you want to do? Like, you know, where did you, know, you go to school? What were you trying to pursue? Where, did you ever think about making, making games? Like this type of thing.
0: It, it, it's weird. You know, I, I played a lot of video games, but I had this, I had a weird feeling about games, which is that. I loved them, but they seemed fundamentally like something that grown didn't do, which right. is a weird. I, and I don't think this is not, there's no one, this prejudice is no one's fault but my own. Uh, but I remember when I went to college, my, my grandfather said, he'd buy me a laptop. And I said, oh, well, that's you know, all right. I'll, that, that sounds great. But I, I don't want a good one because I didn't want a laptop that could play games. Okay. And so I, and, and this was a way of me being like, I'm going to college. I'm going to be a journalism student. I want to be a reporter. Right. I'm going to, like, put away childish
1: just put things. Away, put away my childish things. Yeah, right, and so, yeah. so
0: I have, like, a weird... Even though I play a lot of video games, I, like, have this black period from, like, 2005 to 2010 where I played nothing. So, like, I played Halo once. Yeah. I mean, I just, like, missed the whole, like, the Xbox store, all that stuff. Isn't something that I really in- encountered at all. And so when I went to school, you know, I, I, I brought with me... I had a copy of El Grande and a few other games. and but But mostly, I got very serious about my studies. I wanted to be, I wanted to be a journalist. Um, and I went to Indiana, which had a really good journalism school. Right. And just sort of, I learned kind of the basics of broadcast, broadcast reporting. But it was, a, it was a weird time to be a journalism student because Craigslist had kind of destroyed... Mm-hmm. The newspaper the ad papers, model, yeah. yeah, and but Facebook hadn't yet created the entry level social media manager job. Okay, so there were no rungs on the bottom of the ladder. So I remember calling a bunch of local papers and be saying, "Look, I'll work for very little. I just want to kind of get a start." And they said, yeah. "Well, we literally have no jobs Jeez. for you." <laughs> um, and so you know, I, I was doing all this, and I, I, so I wasn't thinking about games certainly as a career. Although I did run into a weird paper I had written in sixth grade, like a career paper. I'd forgotten I had written where you know you had to like pick a job yep. and then interview someone who did it, and I had interviewed. Uh, I'd said I wanted to be a game designer, yep. and had interviewed some people at Relic because I was obsessed
1: with Homeworld at the time. Oh, wow, okay. Um, and, in what grade? Uh, in sixth grade. Okay, wow. Yeah, so Homeworld
0: just kind of, that was my the first How
1: did you even get a hold of them? Well,
0: it was, it was, uh, I just, I wrote just an email to, you know, uh-huh. whatever the support, and then it was one of those I didn't hear back for a month, and then the person who designed Impossible Creatures 2, who I should probably look up, mm-hmm. wrote me this very, very kind answers to these, like, you know, these sixth graders' questions. Um, and so, it was, I mean, it was probably in the back of my mind that it seemed like an interesting thing to do, but I wasn't. Um, it just didn't seem like a job that people had because, you know, I grew up in a little Rust Belt city. I didn't know anybody who worked in entertainment or, in, let alone, in games. And so, you know, I, I kind of went through school thinking about being a reporter.
1: And mm-hmm. why did you want to be a reporter?
0: Uh, because I was obsessed with politics. My okay. my father uh, was involved in the kind of the local political scene in northern Indiana, and I was always sort of running into people who'd worked at, at papers and. I really, like, admire, I mean, we would watch, I remember um, as a kid watching Bill Moyers with my dad, mm-hmm. and it, right. it, it was just, I was like, oh, that's, that's what I want to do. Right. I want to, like, I want to help work on the Bill Moyers show, such a specific, strange thing. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I, I got to school, and what I found was, uh, I was a, a really bad student for most of my life. I didn't, you know, I didn't really apply myself, but when I got to college, I found I, I genuinely loved taking classes and especially if they were taught by people that were scary smart or impressed me in some way. And so Indiana had a really good history program and a really good English program. And so I just started taking classes in those departments and ended up, you know, kind of bloating my degree just trying to get as many classes as I could. And then when I graduated, um, there, there were no jobs, and so I ended up working in disability services for a year or so, mm-hmm. just helping manage a, a group home. And then on, on the side, I would uh, work as a research assistant to some of the professors I had worked with. Okay, and I did this because, you know, it was ten bucks an hour, just right. to just to just to hang out at a library. That's great, and, and also they, um, I just I genuinely liked the work. And then I remember one of the what professors. Were, what were
1: you researching for them?
0: Uh, so the, well, I had a professor who uh, named Josh Marsh. And her husband, David Francis, were, uh, they worked a lot in early cinema. Mm -hmm. And David Francis had one of the largest uh, privately held collections of Magic Lantern, Ephemera, and Slides, which Mm -hmm. are kind of proto-projectors. And they actually had a little house in Bloomington that was just the archive of his private collection. He had worked at the BFI before that. So I spent a summer just, like, helping them clean it and sort it and kind of work in there. And at some point, I think it was Joss who, who asked, she said, well you know, it's, it's getting into the summer. Like, have you started working on your graduate school applications? And I said, well, I don't really even know what graduate school. I barely understand uh, what this is. She's like, oh, well, I assumed you were doing all this work for me so that right. you could be applying for graduate school. And I was like, oh, I hadn't really even considered that, but maybe, uh, maybe I should go ahead and try to do that. So I just sort of stumbled my way into a graduate program. Okay. Uh, mostly because it just seemed like an interesting place to, to spend some time. And it was around that time that I started playing games more. I was sort of free from college, and I had a little bit more free time,
1: and I, I got interested in games again. Why did you think it was okay to start playing games again?
0: Well, I mean, part, partly when I moved to Austin, uh, so I did my, my graduate work at UT, yep. and when I moved to Austin, there was a game store across the street, from okay. just, from literally just from the apartment I randomly, you know, picked, yeah. picked. So I walked across the street to Great Hall Games, sadly no longer in business, and there were all these people playing war games and historical games. Yep. And I thought, well, I you know, I don't have anything better to do today. Right. I'm just gonna like sit down and play. And I played um, uh, this game designed by Phil Eklund called Lords of the Spanish Main. This pirate game that it was a pirate game that like wasn't interested in pirate tropes. Like it mostly had to do with like the Dutch and mm-hmm. like Puritan migrations and okay. like Spanish treasure fleets. And but it was very it was very specific and grounded in the, in the 17th century in a way that I've never seen in a pirate game. Um, Because most pirate games feel like, you know, Monkey Island or Pirates of the Caribbean or something. Right. And uh, so I sat down and played and I thought, well, I've never seen a game that engages with history this way. And then I played his game High Frontier, uh, which had just come out. Right. And it it blew me away. One of the first games of High Frontier I played, my, my little crew was moving through a radiation belt, and their ship busted up. And I spent the second half of the game trying to rescue my crew. I lost completely... But I'd never seen a board game tell so vivid and specific of a story. Right. And that kind of led me to really get back into thematic games, which at that point I'd been playing mostly Euros and kind of efficiency games for five, six years. Yeah. Um, but it was Phil's games and some of the other war games that were being played that kind of dialed me back into games that were
1: really grounded in their storytelling. Right. Cool. Okay. And what were you, were you studying at, uh, in Texas?
0: So I was in the English department. I worked mostly on the 19th century, the 18th and 19th century English novel. Right. Um, so, and, and again, that, that, that came, and it wasn't because, I mean, I love Victorian novels, but I don't like them that much. I wanted, <laughs> so well, somebody had given me what was a pretty good piece of advice, which was that, especially at the university, if you're going to be in research, you want to find something that you love, but it isn't like your truest passion, because you need a little bit of distance. Okay. And so, I, I you know, I adored, you know, a, a, a Thackeray novel or a Dickens novel. But, I mean, most of the stuff I really loved reading was all 20th century. I mean, I love 20th century poetry and, and postmodern novels. Right. And, but but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't be a good scholar of them because I was too much of a fanboy. Uh, and, and so I had, like, enough distance from the 19th century that I could, I could work on it. And then the longer I stayed in graduate school, the more my studies kind of shifted over towards um, yeah. the history side and the history of
1: empire. I mean, 19th century literature, I mean, I don't know. It almost feels like it's history, basically. Yeah. Right. Research is more than, yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, as much as this literature, right? So um, that's that's why I always find it kind of interesting. But um, okay, cool. And so so you got a, you finished your degree, yeah. And what did you do then? Well, I you know over the course of my degree,
0: graduate school is funny because it's hard. Or at least I, I it was a difficult program, and mm-hmm. I, and I it, it wasn't a walk in the park. But you also have these weird um, pools of free time right. where you you know you, you submit an article and you're waiting and so you wait like months, yep. and you might be teaching a class or two, and you've got some things that you're helping plan, but mostly you're just waiting. And I, I had an appointment for a few years at uh, this place called the Digital Writing and Research Lab, the DWRL, and uh, they gave you um, Adobe keys. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you were in the DWRL, you could use any Adobe software. And so I just started teaching myself graphic design, mostly because I was bored. I was sitting in a little proctoring lab, watching other people teach, mm-hmm. and I would you know, fix the projector when it broke. And so I just started teaching myself InDesign and then while that was going on, um, you know, I've been playing these games by Phil and and some other designers and I just started emailing them and saying, well, I'd I'd be happy to like, you know, I I wanna play test for this game. And then that turned into someone would say, well, I need this laid out. Can someone like lay out this this rules aid? And so I said, oh, I can lay that out. And so I was just picking up a little bit work and just trying to make myself helpful because I was interested in games. I wanted to make them better. I wasn't right. really thinking about a career. I was just...
1: Was, was reaching out to Phil the first time you'd reached out to someone in the industry? Yeah, it was the first time I reached out to a designer and he wrote back, you know, the, the
0: next day. He was so open. Yeah. Um, and pretty soon I, uh, I was on these like email threads with about six or seven other people who in retrospect were like, that was the little design brain trust where he's like, used. yeah, like here's my idea and people would react and talk about it. Yeah. And, I really, and a lot of this was just happening in email threads you know, and wasn't, it wasn't very
1: sophisticated stuff. And I, I were these people mostly local to him? Because like, how would he, back then it seems like it would be a lot harder to, if you're trying to design a game, get feedback on it if people were all over.
0: So there were a couple centers, you know, it was him and his son and a couple people local to Tucson. And then there were a few other places, like there was a group in Germany and a group in mm-hmm. Sweden who he had some relationship with, right. and then they would start, you know, uh, tossing out their ideas. And I, I helped play test a game of his called Greenland, which is the first game I ever really worked on where I can look at that game and point at conversations and so things. You that I, that I was like, Yeah, that, you know, we like changed that. And uh, Greenland was a really interesting game. It's a, it's a survival game about the Norse and Greenland. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a reverse colonization game because the Norse get to Greenland and then the, right. the, the Inuit come later. And then the small ice age happens and... Yep. The, the Norse There's can't, can't have cattle anymore. Yep. And, and They,
1: they have, have to leave have to be or done. die, I guess. Yeah, or, yeah,
0: so some combination, yep. <laughs> right? Um, and I, I really enjoyed working on it. And then it was over that process that he said, well, would you be interested in working on a game? Like, do you actually want to design one? I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. And that led to a kind of string of, of history games that I did that were done. You know, I think Phil liked working with me because I, I didn't bother him that much. So uh-huh. I would say, okay, I'll go work on this game when you need the files and then I would just give him the files and he would kind of look over everything and say, yep, this looks pretty good. Let's send it to the factory. I need it, you know, he's gonna come out at Essen.
1: Right. Uh, And so it was a very- (laughs) Okay, that sounds very straightforward. Like, no,
0: I don't know that he ever like really played John, Company, the first edition of John Company. Really, okay. Because at that point, Premier, well, from my perspective, it was great because Phil had a a built-in audience. Right, And so I think one, one of the hardest things, this is always a hard piece of advice to give to people who are breaking into the industry, where they'll want to build their audience from scratch. And yep. I always tell them, like, I kind of don't even know how to do that. Because yep. what I did was I found a group of people who liked the same kinds of games I liked. Yep. And I sort of commandeered that audience. I mean, commandeering is too aggressive of a word. I just, I, I, I already had a pre-built audience. Yep. And then when I kept catering to it, eventually when I went off to do my own thing, many of those people came too. I see, and that's very different from saying like, here's my idea, like, yeah. like it on Steam, and we're just going to build it from.
1: Yeah, the I don't, product. I don't know how to do it either. You know, sure. For my career, like, I piggybacked off of Civilization, right? right. And um, you know, in here at GDC, that's where we're talking. You know, there's going to be a lot of people telling people like, oh, this is how you know it's really important to build your community, and you got to make sure blah blah blah. But like. I don't know how I, I, I. don't know if someone really does that from scratch. Like it yep. seems like a miracle every time it happens. You know.
0: Well, the, the first edition of Premiere sold three thousand copies, which was never in doubt because Phil would say, "Look, I'm yep. going to print three thousand copies. They'll sell <laughs> over about Ordered, a year or two, yep. and then I'm going to go on to the next game." And his his whole business model. I mean, I, I loved his business model because it was built around things like. German postage rate discounts. (laughs) So you had to build the the games had to be a certain size. They had to be under a kilogram Uh. because he knew he could ship them fast enough. And later, when he moved to Germany, you know, he would tell me like, "Well, this is how many games I can like fit on my bike rack, and I'm going to bike down the hill to the little post office and ship them off." So it's very, you know, kind of artisanal.
1: Wow. Yeah. Um,
0: But uh, Premier sold. Premier sold faster than expected.
1: Would he sell everything direct? Is that Almost everything was
0: sold direct, wow. yeah. Okay. So you know, in, Unless you were a store that wanted to buy, but he, he never put things into distribution. And back in those days, you know, he would, his whole schedule was built around Essen and because he, he, would, he would have a little booth at Essen and, and sell there. And would stores buy the stuff direct? Yes, some would. So, right. And actually, the store that was across the street from my apartment in Austin was one of the few stores that did, because I'd never seen his stuff in stores. And right. here was basically his entire catalog. And I think it was just a matter of, one person at that store liked his stuff and would just call him up or yeah. send him an email and, and order it that way. Uh, so I, I had done those things and I'd also been writing about games and I'd written a few essays about them and I just started because you know I was doing a lot of writing in my day to day job and thought, okay, well maybe, maybe I should do reviews. I like games. Yeah. Maybe I should be like writing games in my in my spare time and things like that. Um. And, and, and it, but it had been just a little, a little side note. And then when I was defending my, getting ready to defend my dissertation, I was, I was, you know, it's a classic graduate school problem. You're running out of funding. And you're yep. like, can I, I mean, it's, it's a little bit like launching a game. You're like, can I finish this game, <laughs> you know, before we run out of money? Um, and I, I delayed my dissertation defense because I was finishing John Company. Okay. And there was... I had too much to do. And so I I remember I went to my advisor and I was very careful to never tell anyone I worked with the university that I was working on games in my Mm. spare time because there was a a perception uh, at the university that if they had any kind of side hustle, they weren't serious about their academic work. Huh, okay. And that's because it was a very, very competitive program. Okay. And so, you know, if you... That's kind of
1: really sad because like kind of seems like... It's very important for an academic to have like multiple interests and multiple like...
0: Well, and a lot of people were working. I mean, I was working at this little cram school on the north side teaching SAT prep on the side. I would would never tell anybody I had that side job because as soon as you told them, they'd be like, well, you're just trying to go teach at a community college and kind of get the degree. You're not interested in actually like playing the R1 game and getting into the research world. But I I went to my my mentor... um, who was, you know, who was directing my dissertation, and said, okay, look, I, I, need to def- I need to delay my dissertation, it's not ready, because I have to finish this game at the East India Company. Right. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, and I kind of like, you know, just spooled out the past <laughs> few years, the fact that I've been kind of doing these games, and he was like, I can't believe you've never told me I love war games, right. and he like, showed me a copy of Wilderness War that he had, wow. uh, and he had, you know, and it was just a, a funny moment. And, uh, and he said, but like, are you sure you want to delay your dissertation? I said, well, I know more people are going to read the rule book to this board game than are going to read my dissertation. Yeah. So it, because at that point there were just, you know, a thousand people or a couple thousand people who were interested in that work. Whereas, you know, in a university, there's like 10, 15, um, And so it's funny that, you know, the the volumes of board game, board game volumes are so much smaller, orders of magnitude smaller than video games, but also orders of magnitude greater than (laughs) academic publishing. Sure. Um, And so I I delayed delayed my dissertation, finished John Company and got it shipped off. And then I was up for this this teaching job at at this little school in Indiana that was sort of defunded over the course of my application process. Mm. And it was looking really good. It was looking good enough that I stopped applying for other jobs. And uh, that's, a, that's a classic mistake. <laughs> so I just sort of said, like, okay, good. I'm gonna, I'll teach at this little school in Indiana. It'll be great. And then that job evaporated, and I didn't know what to do, and I saw a little job posting on Twitter, of all places, that just said, hey, we need a development a developer over at Leader Games.
1: Wait, you know, hold on. Let's back up. Yeah, sure. You actually skipped over, essentially, your first games. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, Right, like, you know, like, and I, you know, <laughs> I wrote them up and they got sent off and that was it. So because that's a pretty big deal, just period. Like, anytime someone makes their first game. So yeah. which, which, so Phil said, hey, okay, like, you know, you seem to be have good ideas. Like, do you want to, how many people would he have done that with? Like, so uh, rare apparently,
0: he had told me, he told me something interesting years later, which was that, he had been trying to publish more games for a long time. I see. But what was happening is people would say, I have a great idea for a game. Yeah. And they'd say, cool, go make it. And right. they wouldn't make it. Yeah, okay, sure. And so which he, is common. It was, yeah, which yeah. is common. But, but he was in a spot where he felt like he had built up this extra bo- like well of capital. He yeah. had uh, a strong enough network that he could help people with yep. factories and, and, and pre-press and all that stuff. But- he didn't have titles to publish, yep. and so as he was working, he said, "Well, like you should go work on a game about Central Asia because I know that's you know you're you're working on a chapter about Central Asia, so if you think there's a good game there, you should you should go do it." And I said, "Okay, well, that's that's something I'll think about." And I didn't really know how to do it. Um, and part of the problem is, you know, I think working in the university can make you really uh, it has a chilling effect on creative output sometimes because you're aware of how easy it is to do it wrong. Right. And so I thought, okay, I want to make a game about Central Asia, but I really don't want it to be like a piece of Orientalist garbage. Right. And so for that reason... I don't want this
1: to be embarrassing. I don't
0: want this to be embarrassing to me, to my advisors, to my my family. Um, And so it took me a long time to figure out how to make this game about Afghanistan. And the core problem was I started designing it. So I thought, okay, I want to make a game about Central Asia. I think...
1: I think that, and you mentioned because uh, you were already so you were already doing research on this area. Yeah, yeah. So, so I've like been doing. Your focus, was yeah, that I, what your dissertation was? Or well, was so that
0: so my dissertation was about um, it was about perceptions of space and time in the nineteenth century. And okay. what, what what made it interesting was that I didn't talk too much about the railroad. It's like it's about perceptions of space and time and them shifting before there was a technical apparatus to speed them up. Because what was happening is I noticed a lot of people would say, oh yeah, so the, you, know, you get the trains in the 1830s and 40s, and everybody starts talking about how small the world is and how fast modern life is. But when I started reading about the, the actual like, letters that people were writing, they were having those conversations like 30 or 40 years before the telegraph, before the trains. Right. And I thought, well, what could have happened that would lead people to do this? And I'm like, oh, it's actually, it's the global empire. Right, um, And, and the, the global empire is this, it's this odd confidence game. And I always think about the example of, of India and the telegraph. They, they dropped a telegraph line in the mm-hmm. 1850s that connected London with uh, the company's holdings in India. Yep. Uh, it didn't work, though. It was, fishermen were constantly pulling it up. It was getting sliced all the time. Okay. Uh, but everyone would always pretend like it was working. <laughs> and, and so it was, it was just a moment like, you're like, look, London, I'm going to call dad, you know, like I'm gonna, if, there's, if there's a problem, but like they pick up the phone and they just had to pretend like they were actually talking to the police. And in fact, you know, it was a deadline. Wow. Um, and so I, I was really interested in that and just sort of how, how people got around and existed in a world where their family members are living you know, six months in the past or in the future, depending on you know, Red, which, which, yeah, yeah. Which, which direction the letters are going. So one of those chapters I wrote about was um, about this guy, Joseph Wolf, who is this missionary. And he read a report in the newspaper that said, these two men are hostage in the city of Bukhara. And he said, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rescue them. Right. And he goes on this insane journey to rescue these people. He gets there and they, are, they have been dead for a long time. Yep. And then he goes home. And the whole the the journey is so peculiar because it relies on him assuming that the world is more connected than it actually is. Right,
1: and then like this is this is valid information I have right now.
0: Yeah, exactly, and and in fact, his and then it's especially interesting because when he writes about this in the, this a wild uh, book, the travel memoir that he wrote about, um, he. F- I think he figures it out pretty quickly that he's on a pretty dumb mission. Right. But to maintain the tension of the narrative, he has to pretend otherwise. Right. And so as he's getting closer, everyone's telling him, like, these people have been dead for a long time. What are you doing? But he's finding ways of, like, but there was a glimmer of hope over here. I mean, a little Mm -hmm. bit like a bad cliffhanger in a daytime TV show or something. And so I've been working a lot on these travel narratives and just, you know, seeing people experience the bigness of the world. And then that had brought me, you know, into learning about the history of Central Asia and thinking about like, why, you know, why do we have these Khanates in the 19th century? What's going on there? And, you know, how, how is the, how is the, is the company, you know, trying, like, what, what is it, what is the British East India Company trying to accomplish in what was called then the Northwestern frontier and learning a lot about, you know, the history of the, of the, the, the Sikh kingdom and, and the, the, the Russia's Western expansion. And so I'd been thinking a lot about the politics period. I was, I was really interested in it because Central Asia, it was just something I, I knew nothing about. Yep. And you know, and there's actually, there's a bit of, a, of my history with games that I left out, which is that I, Loved designing games that I would never play. Like when I was in history classes in college, I would oftentimes like, I remember I was in a Byzantine history class and I was mm-hmm. learning about the themes systems and how they yep. did, did their levies. Mm-hmm. And I remember kind of like sketching out in the margins like, oh, that's like a cool idea for a game. And it wasn't a game I'd ever make. It was like, I was just trying to understand something right. by putting it into a model. Right. And so I thought, okay, I don't really understand a lot about Central Asia. What if I made a game about it? That would like help me learn right. how, that, how that thing worked. And so I had this in our my, my mind and I was reading these books, but the books were always like spy novels. Right. And, I, and I tried figuring out like, how do you make a game about Central Asia with all these spies? But the spies were, they were they're so inconsequential. I mean, it's like the opposite of like, uh, you know, an Ian Fleming or a, a John le Carré novel because mm. the spies don't do anything. They're, they're, they're important, but they're not, they're not the people who are actually steering the, the events. And so I I, I noodled on this idea for about six months and then I gave up. And then I saw a talk um, when I was at UT and the person mentioned this book called State and Tribe um, by Christine Noel, which is this this book about the emergence of modern Afghanistan. And I read the book and suddenly like every little fragment that I knew about the period, locked in a single picture. And I was like, oh, this is about an empire that, which itself was a weird relic of the Persian conquest of India and the rise of the the Mughals. And then the Durrani Empire is in a state of collapse. You've got this massive power vacuum and you've got Persian interests and different local interests and Russian interests and British interests trying, you know, competing for control of the space while at the same time the Afghans are trying to figure out a way that they can make what looks like a modern state. Right. And this is not so different from what was happening in Europe in the 19th century, in the Balkans or in any other places where, you know, people are asking like, is there a regional hegemon that can stitch together something like a nation state here? Right. And yep. as soon as I had that in focus, I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to rebuild this game. So I, I created a draft for Premier. I sent it to, I sent like the rules and some PDFs to fill and said, okay, here's the game. And about a month later, he wrote me and said, cool, I want to buy it, here are the terms. And I remember he I got- He didn't
1: have any like feedback? On no,
0: he, he said, you know, it needs work, it's not done. Um, but he was like, I, I want to go ahead and, and, and just let, let's secure this. We'll put it on the schedule. Do you think you can finish it by, you know, in, in eight months or something? Then I remember I got that email at like four in the morning because he was in Europe at the time. And I just couldn't sleep. I mean, it was like one of those. Like I mean, and I think he gave me. I think I made. I think I made twenty five hundred bucks, and like he paid me a twelve hundred dollar advance. Right. And at that time, as a graduate student, my income was like fifteen grand a year because right. I had like a teaching stipend. Yep. And I I was. I, I don't know. It it it, it blew me away. I, I couldn't believe that it actually happened. And then, mm-hmm. you know, within a few weeks, I had that money in my bank account. Yep. And then I was finding myself just working on it. You know, in, in how much in the time had you
1: spent working on it at that point? You think? At
0: that point, like maybe, like I don't know, on and off for four or five months.
1: Right. Um, Can we just talk about like what? Because what usually interests me is like, okay, you want to make a game about Central Asia during that period, um, and you know, there's probably a thousand different ways to do that, right? Um, and you chose a couple of very specific ways to to mm-hmm. make packs. I mean, I played the second edition. I've never played, played right. the first, so I'm not sure how different it is. But um, you know, how did you decide to? I mean, there's some things really unique about packs, right? Like a lot mm-hmm. of uh, you know, most games, like okay, you're you are these, mm-hmm. you're this nation or whatever, right. you're this group, and these are your units and those are your units. And you know, like in in packs, you can flip around, and it's, mm-hmm. it's you know the. The, the forces are not the players. Yeah. Right? Um, that's that's interesting. The whole card-based system is interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, anyway, so like, I'd like to hear some of the stuff. Yeah, How did so, the come about? Well, it's, and what the, were you trying to do? There,
0: there were two things. So I've talked a lot about the realization about the history, but there was this other conversation in my mind about game design, mm-hmm. which had... Sort of nothing to do with the history and everything to do with the history at the same time because I was just thinking about games that I was playing that there were things that they were doing that I didn't like. And one of them was I found that we are playing a lot of Race for the Galaxy. Yep. And I noticed that in tableau builders like that, um, you care a lot about your opponents in the early phases of the game, like a lot. Like yeah. if you're going to explore, I'm not going to explore. Yep. And you know, you, you're always trying to read, the, read each other. But as you build out your tableau and your capability – you're caring less about them. And really that's what, what you're building. You're building the ability to not care about the other players in the table. <laughs> that's true, yeah. Um, and so the tableau builders were always ending where I was just like looking down, where at the start of the game I was always looking, looking. looking across. Right. And so I thought, I want. could I invert that? Like would it be possible to build a tableau builder where at the start it doesn't really matter what you're doing, and then at about halfway through the game you start really caring about what the other players do and that by the end of the game you are thoroughly entangled with, with them. and. The coalition system kind of came out of that. and it, you know, PAX Premier has a, um, a, storing, a scoring structure that basically says, you're gonna be on teams and you're gonna work together. Mm-hmm. And when you're on these teams, your resources count collectively, but the prize pool is only gonna go to particular players within that team. So there's kind of always two races. Mm-hmm. Um, or one way to think about it is there are kind of two scoring axes in the game. And the game is about dominating one scoring axis or the other, and then the third element of the game is dominating the fight to determine which scoring axis is going to count. Right. Um, And so I've been thinking about that, I mean, really kind of an abstract, uh, as an abstract uh, problem. And the game that helped me think about this was Pax Perfuriana, which is the kind of first game in what we now think of as sort of the Pax series. And Pax Perfuriana is a game that Phil made about um, the Mexican Revolution. And it has a brilliant conceit. It's an amazing design. I shouldn't say that Phil made it because it was really made by him and his son and this guy, Jim Gutt. And I think think his son did a lot of the design. Mm -hmm. And the history of the design, the very short version of it is there was this game called Lords of the Sierra Madre, which was this massive open world sim that basically did the Southwestern United States and Northern Mexico from Uh 1900 to 1920. Right. And it is an incredible design. It is massive. It, like, barely works as a game. Okay. It, but it is so it is so crisp and exciting in its narrative possibilities that players don't mind. Like, they don't really care about, you know, what, what they're actually competing over or anything like that. And, you know, Phil had designed that game while his son was growing up. Mm-hmm. So his son played a lot with his friends. And then in, in, their, in adulthood, his son and, and Phil and the, 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 their, their friend had attempted to make a card version of it. Mm-hmm. And in, in what I love about Pax Porfiriana is that it, 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 it collapses like the weight of a star into like a sugar cube. There, all mm-hmm. of the history is still there. It's just hidden in really interesting ways in the design. And they did it by saying, okay, here's a market of cards. You're going to be buying cards from the market. You're going to be playing them on building your little tableaus. You're playing Hacendados. So you're, you know, kind of influential figures in the Mexican government. And the core idea is here we have Porfirio Diaz. He's kind of the corrupt president of Mexico and he's old mm-hmm. and he's going to go away soon. But when he goes away, who gets to be in charge of Mexico? And Phil and, and the design team, the way they sorted through this is they said, okay, let's imagine there are these four moods, and they call them re- re- regimes in the design. And so if, if everyone is happy with, with Pefiria Diaz, we call that the Pax Perferiana. And then at that point, the player who has the most loyalty. So when, Perferia, when Diaz gets sick and goes away, whoever was the most loyal to him, they get to be the new president of Mexico. Right. But let's say there's a Marxist revolt. Mm-hmm. In that case, the person who has the most sort of like influence with the Marxists is going to win. Yep. And let's say there's a military coup. Well, then it's going to be about controlling the military. Or let's say the U.S. intervenes. Well, how close are you to Teddy Roosevelt? Yep. And then so as players are building, they're, they're kind of building these different types of victory points. But at the end of the game, you only check, okay, do you have the right kind of victory points? Mm-hmm. And then you're going you're gonna to take it. And so I thought, okay, that's a great framework." And then I tried to build it out into more explicit, a more explicit coalition framework, because I felt like if you and I were both trying to get close to Teddy Roosevelt, we should be working as if we were on a team rather than just two players collecting blue stars. Right. Um, and so Premier's design was very much like a riff on on Perferiana in the same way that the early games I'd worked on were you know essentially variants. Um, but I ended up
1: and Not, you felt like it was a good match for Central Asia because yes. you felt like there were historical echoes between kind of the two periods. Yeah, and, yep.
0: and it, was, it was one of those, you know, you have a big list of... Uh, I always I do this exercise when I'm designing where I write, like, here are the characters, here are, like, the scenes that I want to have mm-hmm. happen. Uh, and then you ask, like, is the game strong enough to support these moments? Right. So, I know, you know, it, it's never about, like, does this particular thing happen, but, like, could it happen within the space of the game? And it seemed like a good match for Central Asia, because both areas are borderlands. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they're borderlands that get dominated by like little political enclaves, yep. right? And so you have, you know, you have Sonora and Chihuahua, and you have these like small landowners who have a lot of power in their very limited jur- jurisdiction, which is a lot like the little city states. They're not really city states, but little, little cities and local powers in Afghanistan. So right. it felt like a pretty clean match. And I think a lot of the when Phil started working on Pax Renaissance, I said, "I don't know if it's a good fit for the system because you're not working on a borderland area, yeah. and so it doesn't, you know, map." Uh, but he, they were able to make it work in a different way. Um, and so, you know, we, we I had kind of built through that stuff, and that gave me a basic formula. And then, as I was going through the game, I would, I, I kind of started with a very Pax. Porfiriana game. It yep. was almost like just a mod of it. Yep. And then at, the longer I worked on it, I kept just subbing out systems. And so w- one of the first things that happened is I got rid of money okay. because uh, there wasn't a lot of money circulating in uh, 18th century Afghanistan, right. it, in, in 19th century Afghanistan. it um, part of this Part of this problem was just because most of the circulating currency was stolen from Northern India in raids in the late 18th century. And so once that dry, dried up, there just mm. wasn't cash. Like, there's, like a, there's a famous like liquidity crisis that happens in Central Asia where there's just not the influx of, of capital coming through. Um, and so I thought, well, okay, well, it's not, it doesn't really make sense for someone to be wealthy and have all this money and be able to buy all these baubles because that wasn't really how power worked. And so I decided to instead change the money system to something more abstract. And so the, the money, uh, which they're still called rupees, but they represent political capital. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is you accrue political capital in a variety of ways. And then when you spend them, you put them into circulation. Right. And so you know, when you buy a card from the market, you, you place these coins on all the cards before. And if anybody buys those cards, they're going to get whatever political capital happens to be sitting on those, right. on those pieces. Uh, and what that did was it created this world where I thought about the, the cash economy of the game like a water table. Right. And so you, know, you can hold it all. But players can take moves to, like, shift the water table over, and then all the political influence will start running in other, in other areas. Uh, and pretty much every part of the design I went through and found, like, okay, I want this to behave in this way. Or, and actually, all my the work I had done on travel narratives uh, changed how the spies worked because I realized I didn't want to put the spies on the map because I'm like, spies are always lost. And they're mostly not moving from, you know, two GPS coordinates, you know, a GPS coordinate to another. They're moving from one specific thing to another specific thing, which is why the spies in the game move al- in the tableaus. They're like not on the board at all. Right. Uh, and that was a really important part of the game's kind of like temporal.
1: Yeah, I mean to me that's to make player positioning matter yep. and car positioning matter, which was, you know, I thought was, it was interesting. Um, the uh, Okay. Um, it's interesting when you talk about this stuff, I'm kind of curious where the kind of the line is between how much were you trying to like improve packs- Perfuriana versus how much were you trying to make a game about Central Asia, right? Because it seems like the, the two things are kind of melding, right? Right. Um, anyway. well,
0: yeah, there's always, I always have these kind of like two tumblers, and one of them is, you know, settings, stories that I want to tell, and then the other tumbler is like a mechanical intervention. And I, I find it impossible to design without disliking something. Like I always pick a design where I'm like, I'm not happy with how this works, even if it's a game I adore. And then I try to work in the negative space and build something, you know, that, that, that addresses those things. So I was really – I wasn't trying to make a better Porfiriana. I, I really wanted to just make a game – I mean, fundamentally, I wanted to make a game about Central Asia. And then I also wanted to make a design that did something different with that type of game. But it wasn't – I didn't – I never felt like
1: I was trying to, like um, – Improve upon right. the game. Well, I guess on. you're you're building you know you're yeah. you're building off of it, and, and you know like so it was. What I mean is that like it was an important framework for what right. you were doing, right? Like you were you were you were in the the I don't know that little subgenre, I guess you call right. it or whatever. Um, and so the decisions you were making were still based off of like okay, I'd like to do X instead of Y, but in that kind of space, yeah, right. Um, whereas, you know, you could have also made just completely different game, mm-hmm. right? About Central Asia that probably also still hit the the, sure. the marks you wanted to make, you know, about the period. Right?
0: But 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 some of this was was probably some mercenary thinking on my part because I wanted to make a game that did well with Phil's audience. Sure, and that meant working with what w- already had been proven. Right. right, I wasn't gonna, you know like, take the Doom engine and make, like, a JRPG in it. I was like, no, we're going to make, like, Doom 2. You know, we're going to do, like, another game that is building on the things that that are working. Um, Because I I did want... I mean, I I think something I was very conscious of when I was working on the game was thinking about... I wanted the game to do well enough. I was enjoying the process enough that I thought, well, I want to do, like, more of these. I don't want to just make this, like, one game. And that means it needs to like, hit with, with the audience. And so right. I, was, I, was, I was thinking about that, like, pretty early on in the, in the project.
1: Right. Well, I mean, that's really good consideration, for sure.
0: <laughs> well, it, it, there, there, there's, a funny, there, there's a funny balance because I, th- I think it's easy to um, – I think that when we, when we think about games, it's so funny walking around GDC because I see a lot of people who are, like, they take the – and I mean this in the worst way possible. They take the, like, disruptor mindset into the game mm-hmm. space, and they're like, ah, this is my, like – earth-shaking idea that's going to change everything. And that, to me, is like a profoundly unhelpful way of thinking about how to make good works because you want to be building on something that already, that already works, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. cool. Um, I have a couple questions about kind of like some specific things about how Premiere works that mm-hmm. I found kind of interesting. Um, one is that the whole clear-the-board mechanic mm-hmm. of like when... Um, you know when you do the victory, you, you, the victory determination, and one of the nations is ahead by a lot. Uh, you know, I, you know that's I mean, that's all very interesting because that's why you know keeps people from you know they've considered switching alliances. Um, I mean, I think a lot of a lot of interesting game design is you know early on you have like kind of like the like the most brute force of like it's just risk. We have a bunch of mm-hmm. a bunch of everyone's got their their right. armies. We're just smashing them into each other, um, and kind of like what makes Uh, what I'm usually more interested in conflict games is games where, like, there's very strong limits about who you can attack when. Mm -hmm. And, like, otherwise, it kind of does, to some extent, if you're going to do a game where you can do anything, you might as well just play Diplomacy. Yes. Right? Um, And so I feel like that aspect of PAX is really, Mm -hmm. of Premiere, is really interesting. Um, You know, because you're you're essentially forced into alliances, Mm -hmm. often. Um, And but the whole clearing the map thing feels a little at odds with the idea that I'm, it, it, it kind of breaks me out of the setting a little because I don't, mm-hmm. I don't understand what it would mean in terms of the period.
0: Yeah, well, mostly it's, so, in, 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 this is a part of the game, that, that board clearing mechanism was one of the first things I wanted, and that's a difference between the first edition and the second edition. Oh, okay. And it, because the first edition didn't have victory points, so it was a little harder to score But it was just winning the game. So you would like arrange things up and you'd have the right influence. And then if you essentially had scored like the most points, that's just victory and the game's over. And I thought, well, the problem with this is that isn't telling the full story. Because if you look, if you start, you know, let's say 1823 and we go to 1850, there's moments where one faction achieves dominance. But then 10 years later, there's like a second contest and so I wanted to make sure that players had a sense of, uh, this is more than just a single moment where they achieved like an a instant of hegemony and then it was all figured out. Right. And so the idea is that there's a, there's a time skip happening, that when, okay. you, when you clear the board, it says, okay, so the, as, as you put pieces on the board, it's not like you're building anything. I mean, and, and, and this, is, this is funny because Premiere has like the build action in it, but most of what you do in Premiere, you're not constructing anything. And this, mm-hmm. I always tell people that I'm really interested in Civilization games that aren't civ builders. Mm-hmm. You're not building anything. What you're doing is putting things that already, you're putting edifices that already exist in alignment with yourself or with your interests. And so as you put pieces on the board in Premiere, it's like ossifying into mm-hmm. a particular conflict. And then the moment it resolves, everybody goes home. Right. And you kind of like clear the board out. And then players will, in, in the, the, the kind of second act, kind of rearm the board a second time. And maybe mm-hmm. it looks like it did the first time, which it sometimes happens, and maybe it doesn't. And what that does is it gives your cards this kind of half-life where if you play the Army of the Indus and you throw a bunch of British blocks on the board, you know, if the Brits achieve dominance, the fact that you have the Army of the Indus on your tableau is not going to help you anymore. They, they, they've, already right. done, they've already done their they've time. already done their thing. Maybe you, you keep them for their uh, administrative capacity, but you need to be holding cards in your hand and thinking about the market so that, you know, 10 years later you can... You can do, do the do the second deed. And this is something I've gotten really interested in design more generally is just thinking about how we deal with different kinds of temporalities and breaks in play because it is a place where I think games really struggle to handle negative space. Right. Um, because it, we want to create smooth experiences for players so they can just kind of like fall into it and just keep pressing the next turn button. I mean, this is something that I feel like you know probably right. more about than most people. Um, but there are these like cool and hot periods where yeah. there'll be a lot of activity in like a five day period and like nothing happens for three months. Right. And those are really important to telling some of these some of yeah. these stories.
1: I mean, one of the biggest issues with, with just like most vaguely historical games is they just have a concept that like, I mean, Civ has this problem 100%, right? Like this idea concept of like, oh, I created this warrior and he's just going to stick around forever. Whereas mm-hmm. most conflicts are building up of force's Something happens, and then the forces go away, right? right you know like there there's an up and down if you're 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 pulling your levies or you're you're doing this or that and and um you know there isn't this sort of constant military presence, so I get mm-hmm. that. I just kind of wonder if uh, you, you explain it as a time skip, which makes sense, but i I feel like the game doesn't necessarily like explain that like I feel yeah. like there should be maybe a clearing of the market yeah or you have like some of your cards are going to disappear. Some sort of like thing that like marks that like time has passed mm-hmm. here.
0: No, I, I I completely agree, and it's it's, it's a funny place where like I'm, I won't be doing a third edition anytime probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but it is like that. When, when we when we put it in, we had we had a lot of trouble getting it to feel right because when we had. Like we actually had a whole section of like court attrition that players would have to do, and yeah. we had versions where the market would clear. And it was it, it, what we were finding is it was too disruptive to play. Yep, and so sure. we, we were finding the, this weird balance where how can we show that something is changing, but we don't want to like break the players' strategic yep, plans. Sure. And, and sure. I think that like it, it's possible that we were we were over the line a little bit on on one side of it, but it's, it was a really narrow range to, to work in because the players really didn't want. I mean, when you build – if you spend resources in Civ to build that, like, cool knight that you mm-hmm. just, like, teched chivalry to or whatever, you don't want that guy to go away. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I've been playing a lot of uh, this guy Vocal um living campaign games, and one of the things I love about them is you will raise an army, and then they go on the calendar, and they're right. like, hey – They're here for 80 days. Right. And then they're going home. Yep. And so you'll have, like, bad weather or something, or, like, the river's swollen. You can't cross, and you're like, oh, no. I won't be able to. Like, I can't can't get there. Or, you know, the other thing that will happen to you is you'll, like, raise all of your levies at once, and you'll have this giant, fat army, and you're like, okay, great. We're going to go, like, conquer Granada or something. And then you're like, oh, I can't feed all these people. And so your army's very slow, and you're constantly having supply problems, and you're building all these flipping mules to carry supplies through the mountain passes. And... What ends up happening when you actually get into the rhythm of the game is there's this lovely dance where it's almost like a like a hockey coach like pulling and putting mm-hmm. in players constantly. Where you're like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna let these guys go home because yeah. in a year I might need them again. And that was something that you know I was trying to do in Premiere too, and just give this sense of like these were the longer conflicts yeah. that it took to, to sort out.
1: It's funny because I played Oath after kind of playing Premiere a lot and. I kind of feel like maybe it needs some of the stuff that I see an oath in that. Like, um, you know, market clearing, I think, could work in a like a like a conceptual sense. But I understand that, like, yeah, it throws everyone's strategy off Mm -hmm. and like, you know, I was going to do this. And like it's a big the scoring is already a big break. But like just something where, okay, yeah, sure, the army's clear, but something else gets left behind which now changes things a little bit in the next right. game. It doesn't need to be a huge thing, mm-hmm. but just something that means like, okay, the Afghans will always have something in this area. Right. And it's, maybe it's not an army, maybe it's not a this or that, but like there is, there is some story left behind from mm-hmm. like the first two periods of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Or whatever, like I think that could be really Well, impressive.
0: in Oath, I mean, it's no surprise that you have that thought because, you know, Pamir was very, the second edition of Pamir was very much me having worked on route. And a couple other games and then revising Premiere mm-hmm. to, you know, I mean, I, I just had learned a lot. I mean, Premiere is my very first game and Premiere is filled with overly cautious design. I think like the biggest mistake that I made, I, I, I wonder if this is common is I think early in my design, I was very conservative. Because I, I would build a little working system, and then I desperately didn't want a card power to, like, break that system. Sure. So my default was always very conservative system design because I didn't want to break the things that were working. And then as, as I've designed more, I get a lot more liberal with, with my special powers, with my system designs. It's like, no, this can go off the rails. The, the players will be able to correct for it. And if it has if it has thematic and narrative resonance, it's usually worth taking a risk with, with the core system. And, and Oath, so Premier was very much putting in all these lessons I had learned. And then Oath was the first game I made after I had finished the second edition of Premier and was very much a reaction to Premier. Like it was, it was thinking about the kinds of things that the PAX games struggled doing right. and trying to find a way to, I mean, I wanted to make a PAX game without using any of the PAX mechanisms and try to like, how do you get to the same... We'll call it a narrative place, right? But from a completely different, a completely different starting point,
1: right? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, that's interesting. The other thing I want to ask about with Premiere is a player count mm-hmm. because it just seems like such a fundamentally different game. Yeah. Three versus four versus five, and that's that's maybe a positive, right? Like it's kind of cool that it, it plays out totally differently. But it's like it seems like like so so different that, I don't know, like, I don't really have a question, just like, well, like the, how do you think about, like, what was going on there?
0: There, there? there are two schools of thought when it comes to player count. One of them is, how do you make the same experience work at all different player counts? Or in the other way says, these player counts are fundamentally different. Make the... Can you make the game system resonate at all those, all those differences? Almost like they're different variants. I usually tell people I don't include variants in my games, but they do have different player counts, which act like different variants. With, with, with Premier. Um, so one way of thinking about player count is, uh, so, you know, in 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 game theory, uh, game theory is always oriented around two-player contests, right? You're like player one, player two, make rock, paper, scissors, you make the little matrix. And, but when you start doing multilateral games, all of that thinking, like, completely goes away. Like, you just can't use it uh, mm-hmm. because you're, like, working in four and five dimensions now, and it's very hard to even visualize, you know— that that places and usually designs fall apart. I mean, I I love StarCraft. It's probably the game I've played more than any other game. The, the second one, yep. um, And the free for all mode. I think StarCraft is about <laughs> as, as brilliant as <laughs> any as any ga- competitive game can be. Right. Sure. Um, and the free for all mode is
1: so comically bad. It's just bizarre that there you can even do it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Someone should not be letting me ruin it, yeah. <laughs> this game as much. You should as have
1: me. to like go to your any file and like override something yeah, to yeah, unlock exactly. it. exactly. You know?
0: Whereas like the, the team games are goofy, but they're goofy in a way that is so much closer to to, to the core experience. And so, you know, I was working on um I was working on, uh, what was it? I can't even remember the name of the game I was working on, but we we were talking about player scaling and I had this realization that when we're talking about, what was it? It It was some weird, I was playing some weird economic game and we were realizing that at low player counts, players could get away with really wild strategies. Right. But as the game had more players in it, those wild strategies got shut down. And so I started realizing that when you can actually you can use game theory to talk about multilateral games, but it's not player one, player two. It's player one versus the herd, whereas the herd are just what all other players are doing, like the aggregate of all other players. And I, I, I use that, that framework when I think about scaling a lot because I imagine, I think Oath is a really good example of it. You have one player who's trying to do something. And then how many other players are going to be there like running pa- interference on that strategy? And in a lower player count game, there are few, the, the herd is weaker. So there are more wild strategies that are permissible. There's more player control. Um, right. in, in, in John Company, um, John Company always has the same number of actions, no matter what the player count, basically. Uh, th- there are reasons why that's not true. But um, you know, the company is the same size. But in, essentially, you're dividing it among the players. There are people who really like that. Even though it's a negotiation game, there are people who really like it at low player counts because it's like you're all controlling one giant robot, mm-hmm. and you get to control a lot more of the robot, and so you can set up, like, crazy combos, and it's very strategic, whereas the game becomes much more about social engineering at the higher player counts sure. because you only have such a narrow a narrow
1: footing. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I uh, I definitely, like, have the, the sense of, like some games I'll never play as certain player counts or you know, mm-hmm. whatever, but I, you know, like I do sense, like as certain player counts, it's like everything kind of becomes diplomacy, right? Yep. Um, and, yeah, it's just interesting to know how much you kind of, because like what do you, like do you <laughs> do you have like your own canonical version of like what's the what's the right way to play, play Premiere? Uh,
0: Premier, I, I like Premiere a lot, a lot of the counts. I think I prefer, I don't, there are people who like it at five. I like it most from two to four. And I think I probably prefer it as a four-player game, right. but I, I really do play it a lot at the different counts. John Company got the most testing at three mm-hmm. because it was so fast. Yeah, and so I mean, we play a game of John Company in two hours with three players.
1: Yeah. Um, four is interesting for premier because it's like it feels like nothing quite fits. Yep. You know? Yeah, you, you
0: get that awkward like there's always one player. You know, there's always a weird. You feel like one player is always the remainder right. <laughs> of <around> these, <laughs> these division things. But but that also I love that because it means that the Something's system is change. never. F- yeah. finding an equilibrium. Yep. Um, like Root, Root's interesting because I, I, for a long time, preferred Root at three or four. I hated playing it at five and six. I thought it was way too chaotic. Yeah. And then as we started releasing more content, I kind of changed my mind about it because people who played Root at six players, they were playing like a very, di- I mean, almost like an open world strategy game mm-hmm. where it, it doesn't have the same competitive clarity, but the world feels a lot more like living and breathing um, I really like oath as a four player game and a three player game. I think that it is a m it's not a mess at five. It's just I would never do oath at at the max player counts uh requires all players really understand the game right and I think that is enough of a requirement that I usually just don't do it unless it's in a specific situation, although I do like how the game behaves at that at that count um but, I, I mean, I, 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 tend, I don't mind playing games that kind of odd odd player counts because I think they just show different things about the system. Right. Race for the Galaxy is an interesting example, too, because I, I know people who hated it, too, mm-hmm. and think that this, the two-player version of the game is the worst version of the game. Mm-hmm. And actually, and it be, it's because of the double actions. It's, yep. like, too fast and, and permissive, whereas three and four can be very tricky. Uh, and I know other groups who only played it, too.
1: Yeah. I, I really like the two-player version. Yeah, I love it, too. Like, it's oh. I think it's really interesting um, that sometimes you end up doing the same thing, you right. know, and it's like, oh, geez, what happened to that turn, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Uh, okay, so so you you least Pamir uh, mm-hmm. um, with him apparently glancing at the rules. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> I will say, I,
0: and I'll say, you know, what happened with, with, with Pamir, I'll say a little bit more about how, how it got published. So Phil liked it. He said, keep working on it. Mm-hmm. And then... There was a moment in, so he did a review of it halfway through. His, his son was visiting him, and they did a review about halfway through the game, and it wasn't working for, okay. like, all the reasons the games aren't working halfway through the development. Uh, the, the hardest problem was uh, the game didn't have a board at that time. It was only played on cards. Oh, okay. And it was extremely hard to... Understand what the actual game state was because you would like look and you're like I don't I don't know what I'm looking at I can't can't tell if any factions in the lead or anything like that. How
1: were you supposed to tell? Uh, You just you just counted
0: you counted icons. I mean it was oh okay uh, because I was you know I had to make sure the game fit in a tiny little box uh, that was you know four inches square basically uh, two inches tall and uh, but, but but it wasn't working. I had this essential problem. And I remember he sent me a note saying, "Hey, like maybe we should delay this for a year because I'm having a hard time like thinking about the game."
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I said, "Okay, that that's fine, but like give me one week." And I remember I I canceled the class I was <laughs> teaching that week, and then it was spring break, so I actually took two weeks, and I I I built I changed the card list to free up uh, six cards so uh-huh. that I could make the six regions. And the first edition had a map made out of cards where oh, you put pieces, okay. right. and then. Once I did that, the game started working, and he said, okay, this is fine, go ahead and finish it. We set it off, it got released, two pretty positive reviews, uh, a board game writer named Dan Thoreau wrote a really glowing review of it. Um, and it, it sold through, and then he said, okay, you know, people want us to reprint it, and I, and I, there were some things that I had left on the cutting room floor that I built into this expansion called Kyber Knives, which we made for the first game, uh, that came out the next year, and then that next year, while I was working on Kyber Knives, um, there was a publisher starting up uh, that wanted, that, that I, I had done some, some writing for, uh, Amabel Holland, um, when she was editing a magazine. And she asked me if I wanted to design a game for the studio. And I said, sure. And she said, we're going to start a small studio. It's based in Michigan, it's print on demand. And the rules are you get a map and you get a counter sheet. Mm-hmm. with 144, like, 200 counters. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever wanted to make a game like that, <laughs> you're, like, your, your pieces can only be one size. You right. can use dice if you'd like. And I, I thought, well, that sounds like an interesting right. uh, challenge. And then I started working on this Opium Wars game, which uh, I designed mostly uh, – this is a crazy thing, but the when my, my when my son was being born, we were at the hospital for a long time. Mm-hmm. And one of the weird things about, about birth, especially – perspective of the guys, that you you can't do much. Mostly you're you're just sitting there trying to be helpful. But in this particular case, it was extremely like long, Mm -hmm. sort of like low, I don't know how to describe it without like, it was a a boring labor for like the first three days. We were just like in the hospital, like kind of waiting. Right. Low Uh, intensity. Yeah, it was was very, yeah, low intensity. That's the right way of putting it. So I I just sat there with my laptop and was like typing Mm -hmm. out what, what became the draft for Infamous Traffic. Okay. And then we released that game. It did really well. And then John Company came after that. Um, And I can I can go into more detail with that. But but John Company. By the time I did John Company, uh, this is the the point I'm trying to get to. um, I told Phil I was working on this game about the East India Company. Said, "Great. You know, Premier did well. Image Traffic's doing well. If you can get me the files by May, we'll we'll publish it." And he hadn't he hadn't really played it. I mean, I I don't know if he's ever played it. or He played it once or twice. Right. Um, but and so there was just an incredible amount of trust that was, that was granted to me. And it was so nice going to that project because I had, because I had been doing graphic design, he knew that I was going to be submitting the files to the factory. So I kind of like helped handle a lot of the production management. So I got to learn a lot of the business outside of just the design. Right. Just because it was a small operation, I was trying to make myself helpful. Yeah, um, And then John
1: Company was, was worked on that that year. Okay, cool. Yeah, let's talk some about both those games. Like, what were you sure. trained to do with uh, Infamous Traffic?
0: So Infamous Traffic was, was I've been working on John Company for a long time. Yeah. And it had started because there was this game in there's this old Avalon Hill game called Republic of Rome which mm-hmm. is one of the most interesting designs ever made because it tells it does institutional history. It says here's the Republic of Rome. In the game Republic of Rome, all the players are senatorial factions. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can, you know, you're essentially playing a co-op where you're managing the state, but one player, so you can say, okay, well, we need to go deal with the Romans. So we're gonna give Scipio a big army. Hey, why don't you go deal or deal with the Carthaginians? Right. So give Scipio a big army, go go deal with Carthage. And then Scipio, when he comes back would say, you know, what if I topple the government instead? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's how it should go. And it, it does a great job of, of telling that story. But at the time I was really interested in it, this is like circa 2008, 2009, It was impossible to find. Okay. It was one of those, like, it's on eBay for $300. And so I just started thinking, like, oh, I'd love to do a game about institutional history, but instead of doing political history, it'd be cool to do, like, business history. Okay. And and then I started thinking, oh, well, we could do, like, one of the East India companies. And that project was actually where I started getting an interest in what would, in the Victorian period, in, you know, a lot of these weird spy characters and central. I mean, so it was really, John Company was almost like a research project that was informing these other projects I was working on. And one of those projects was this game about the Opium Wars. Mm-hmm. And so I couldn't get John coming to work. But when Amabel asked me to if I was interested in doing a game, I was like, well, I like, kind of want to do a game about the Opium Wars because I've never played a game about it. And it seemed like it might be an interesting uh, subject for a for design. hmm And so I I, I, I put together some notes, and I originally designed the Opium Wars game as a three-faction game. And I said, okay, one player is going to be the British merchants who are mostly interested in shipping opium from India to China to make a buck. And then another player are going to be the Chinese smugglers who were interested in sneaking past the Chinese government to get opium into the interior. And then the third player is the Chinese government trying to shut it all down. Right. And I couldn't get it to work. The, um, what was happening was that the, the players were being too... Um, they were almost being caricatures of themselves. It was, mm-hmm. a strange, it was a strange thing. I've never run into a problem like it. But what would happen is the British player was, sort of felt like they were cast as the villain, which, which they are in, in, to a degree in this game. But they would be. They, they would play like a comic book villain. It was right. like too. It was too cartoonish, and the Chinese government w- w- would play the role of the hero. But like the history, the history is a little bit more complicated than that. And so sure. I felt like everyone's playing this very cartoonish version of the past. It didn't really work or make sense, and so I decided to recast it. And I said, "What if I just have all the players be
1: the villains? Let's make them all." No, let me ask a little bit. Uh, yeah, when you say it didn't work, like, I could imagine a game like that still being. I mean like fun to play. Sure. So no, did, you, you just felt like thematically, it just felt really weird. Yeah.
0: It, it wasn't like it, it worked as a game. Okay. It just didn't, it didn't feel right. It felt like it was telling the wrong story. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so sometimes I'll, sometimes I'll, I'll work on a design. I'll get like a proof of concept working and I'll feel like, well, this proof of concept like isn't, it isn't generating the feeling that I thought it was going to generate. And so, right. you know, it goes back in the bin. Um, and then, so I started thinking about it from the perspective of the, the British m- merchants and there were kind of two questions that needed that needed answered one of them was um, how do you tell the story of the opium wars if you're ju- if you if if your vantage point is like people who never really went to China?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: i mean that, that was like that, that's that's the, the core problem of this traffic is like these people are just hanging out on boats you right. know, like they might be you know in and around Hong Kong or something um and, and and that led to a version of the game that is all about the sort of building of these logistical chains. And it's about thinking about um, a kind of business contract as a bunch of different jobs that need allocated. So the, the core mechanism of infamous traffic is you're building these trade chains. And the trade chain has a bunch of different steps. You need the opium, you need the smuggler, you need someone to bribe a bureaucrat, et cetera. And at each level, they're taking an, a, an amount of graft. Mm-hmm. And then the chain is only gonna be financially feasible if its total is le- is, uh, commiserate with the demand of, of the of the region, and then as soon as that happens, the profit gets realized because right. we said, okay, we are able to like put together a, a deal, uh, and and that was um, that was a fun thing to sort out because it allowed me to build a game that is very parasitic and it involves a lot of like weird little alliances where you say, okay, I'll ship your opium in this context, but you need to give me a good deal in that context, and it created these kind of interesting um, incentives and player entanglements. And then the second problem I had was. What's the in-state like? Like, what, what, what are we actually trying to trying do? Because right. the, the one, there's one thing I, I really dislike in in a lot of business games, which is they'll be about money in a way that treats money as the end. Right. Sure. Which you know, you don't need to spend that long wandering on the halls of GDC to find like finance bros talking about what they're actually after, which is never money, but is always something much stupider. <laughs> um, and so I was just like reading the letters and thinking about the, the, these, different, um, these different trading firms and they were just obsessed with respectability mm-hmm. and with like having nice things. And I, I played a, a splatter game called Greed Inc which was a game that was made after, I think it was made around the same time as the financial collapse, but it has this great system. So you have all these corporations, you're trying to be profitable, you're trying to extract money, et cetera. But what you're doing is like, there's a car auction at the end of the turn. And you're just spending all this money because you're like, this might be the nicest car I'm gonna be able to get. And so I thought, okay, there needs to be some, some like cash out mechanism, which, puts so much pressure, has so much fear of missing out Mm -hmm. that it puts on the players that it then makes their actions in the kind of Chinese frontier uh, more irresponsible. Because I want them to behave like a little rashly and do things that closely correspond to, to what actually happened historically, which meant they need to be trying to extract maximum profit as fast as possible, but in an uneven kind of chaotic way. And so the idea is you you bid this money at the end of your turn. You're basically bidding the profitability of your company to send your kids, your little scions back to England. Mm -hmm. But you don't know what you're going to get. And so then, you know, you reveal two or three prizes and you give like the highest value prize to the player with the most second, et cetera. But sometimes the highest value prize is like kind of a bad marriage that doesn't do anything. And sometimes it's like, nope, you had a hunting accident. Like your kid has gambling debts now. And so now you go into the next turn and you're like, well, my first two brats are like in debtor's prison for their gambling debts. Right. And so now I really need to like land it with, with the third kid. And it was meant to be a little arch. And I was, what I was doing was, was I was trying to find the right kind of tone to, mm-hmm. to talk about this particular period of imperialism. And I was, I was kind of worried about it because when I, when I finished the design, I sent it back to Amabel and said, I like this game. But it's maybe too serious and too silly at the same time. <laughs> we're like, mechanically, it's, like, very tight and aggressive. Right. But then the victory point system is, like, a, a party trick or something. It's, like, we're all wearing, like, silly little cone hats and blowing no, noisemakers. And I don't know if it's going to do anything. I, I even told her, I said, look, if you and Mary, her wife, I'm like, if you guys want to redevelop it, do whatever you want. I'm, I'm happy with how the game is, but also I, you know, this is one of the first games that they were, they were publishing. They were taking a big risk on me. I said, if you need to tune this or you need a different victory point system, I'm not going to get precious right. about it. And they said, no, actually, we think it's great and just decided to publish it. And so it has, it has a weird thing where it, it again got like, published too fast. Like, I would have loved to have kept working on it for another mm-hmm. six months or something. But they said, no. It's, it's What great. would you have liked to have changed? I just wanted – I think the, the cash economy of the game is too tight. Okay. It just doesn't – I mean, it, it, it's a bunch of, like, small, narrow stuff.
1: Right. Um, little mechanical things. Yeah,
0: it's all a bunch of little, little mechanical things. I'll probably have a chance to address that if I do a second edition of the game. Um, but it, it was one of those things that it came out, and even at the moment, I was like, I don't think anyone's going to like this thing. And
1: then there's a there's – a, were, were you afraid of, like, the thematic dissonance? Or, like, uh, well, it,
0: at that it, point, I, I wasn't was – I mean, the, the audience w- was so narrow that I knew that anybody who bought a game about the Opium Wars was comfortable with that the, the, the the thematic yeah. space. Um, I was mostly worried that the people who had really come to like Premier for it's like very careful political calculations were going to be alarmed at something that is a lot more random and capricious. Right. And to my surprise, there were all these game podcasts that really liked it. So like Heavy Cardboard, like Mm -hmm. gave it a nomination and a big spotlight. And it, it did really well, and it, and it did well enough for Hollandspiel, the, the little game company, that they were able to go full-time, and kind of, you know, in the early years that was a really important part of their sales catalog. And I just kept, whenever I got a royalty check for the game, I felt like, I don't understand what people are getting out of this out of this design, because to me it always felt so dissonant, um, mm-hmm. where I was, I was just asking players to do two very different kinds of things. And after that-, that
1: it, it's, it's funny, because it's kind of, um... I remember in your, you know, you gave a talk a couple of days ago, and you kind of talk, mentioned Brenda Romero's train, right, mm-hmm. as a, or I guess that was in the Q&A. You know, as an example of a the game like, okay, this is doing something interesting, but it's kind of like you only do it once. Yeah. Right? And infamous, infamous, infamous traffic isn't really there, but it's kind of like no, a is. little it, bit. Because it's like, you know, at the end of the game, probably people are like, this is, really, this is a really weird experience. Yep. So it seems like understandable if people like found it interesting, but don't necessarily, it doesn't like keep going. So but yeah, anyway, if you have any pers-
0: Well, no, it, it it's it's the closest to like a message game that I've ever that I've ever made. And it I think mechanically there's like enough clever stuff in terms of like how the dice work and the weird little parasitic chains that you're building and it has um it it models the typing uh, uprising in an interesting way, which mm-hmm. is that you know, as the demand for opium increases, there's this sort of um like, stability track for, for the Chinese government. And so the, the missionaries will be going in, opening up regions, and there's all sorts of messes happening. Um, and if things tilt too far, the Taiping uprising happens, and it all kind of, you know, there's kind of a secondary scoring condition. And I think mechanically, that stuff is really, really interesting. It also, uh, it has opium wars in it. And I think that this actually, it's, it's funny uh, to say that because it's quite possible to make a game about the opium wars that doesn't include the opium wars. Because the opium wars, When you say, when someone says, oh, I'm writing a book about the opium wars, or I'm gonna read a book about the opium wars, it's mostly not gonna be about the opium wars, because the opium wars are not interesting as wars. They take like a month and then then they give Hong Kong to the Brits. I mean, they're not really wars. Uh, And what people are really talking about is the opium trade. Yes. and I think yeah, I'm realizing now in this conversation that there's a through line in my work, which is this engagement with different kinds of time. Because the Opium Wars, it's the same sort of thing as the dominance checks in Pamir. Right. Because what happens in the Opium Wars is that under certain s- situations, you can pressure the British government to intervene in China. Right. And when that happens, you go to this war phase where players spend. Their British and so basically, the, the player with the most British influence collects all the British influence, and then they spend it to just wreck stuff, to open up parts of China, to break things, and then after they're done spending it, the war is over, and now like Hong Kong is a British protectorate, mm-hmm. and we're gonna go into the next step. Um, and it, it, what it does is, I think that mechanically, players really like it because it's it's as if you're you're playing a game of Catan, it switches to a war game a bunch of stuff gets destroyed and rebuilt and then you say okay now let's play the rest of the game at catan right. on this like slightly adjusted board and i was thinking a lot you know this is a very graduate student answer but there's this uh Deleuze and Guadari essay uh, on nomadology and the war machine and they have this mm-hmm. amazing metaphor where they talk about how you know one thing that war does is it re it doesn't rearrange anything it just changes the rules so it's like you're you know playing a game of chess and then suddenly we stop and we say, All the chess pieces are go pieces, and you play five turns of, of go, and right. then they've become chess pieces again. Right. And so war creates these like very weird. Right. Like, Certain distortion. things are
1: possible that weren't before. Right. Right. Yeah. And then
0: and then w- when you revert back to what to you know, the previous system or a new system of rules, the world starts to look really strange. And like right. you're like, I don't even understand. How the game state got to wh- wh- where this is, and I think Infamous Traffic does that pretty well. And even though the victory system of the game is like a little arch and maybe a little preachy, the mechanical system is robust enough that players found something.
1: Right. In the design. Yeah. Uh, another thing that, that stuck out to me is that you started about the game, you know, with you started the game with the players in the roles where they're more of like the. the, the the roles with a lot more agency. Yeah. Right? Like they're the actual governments, right? Mm-hmm. Or the, you know, the, the, not necessarily like the the merchants as much, right? Yep. Um, and uh, it's funny because to me that seems like that puts it more similar to Pax Premier yep. in that, and maybe some of your other work where, you know, you seem to be more interested in, you know, the people who are, you know, existing inside of this working system, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's interesting that you had to, you do started it from the other place where like maybe they had too much agency or whatever. Like it kind of didn't make sense. Well, what
0: I found was like the smugglers, for instance, were often just responding to a direct economic incentives. So it wasn't like they weren't shaping those incentives. They were just responding to it. And even that's even true of the Chinese government to a degree, which the, you know, Chinese government at that time was extremely scattered and dysfunctional. And Mm -hmm. in the moments where they were acting, um, in ways that are intelligible, in the, in the sense that like there's a policy that is being put into place. Right. It was usually because there were specific actors like Lin Zexu, who said like, okay, this is wrong. I'm going to like act with authority in this very limited way. And so the, the primary mechanism of infamous traffic is there are these. There's called conspiracy circles, but there are these like action pools at the top, and it's a drafting game. There's a big bag of all the actions, mm-hmm. and you you toss them out in these circles. And then players say like, okay, I'll take that one, and that one is going to be. Chinese government, you, you place some Chinese government pieces, you place a smuggler piece, you put a missionary on the board. Right. And then maybe another conspiracy pool is like three missionaries or something. And it, because a lot of the the actions that were being taken were by small actors with not a lot of agency acting with, in a pretty narrow space. I need, I mean, the British merchants are, it's a little bit like a... Um, it's a little like a conceit or something. It's kind of a cheat to say, like, "Well, let's just imagine that the British merchants are the ones doing it," but really, the rules of the game are doing it, and mm-hmm. then the the players are just sort of activating, you know, certain parts of the rules. Like the the, the system is already creating the behaviors. Right. Yeah.
1: Okay. Cool. Let's so uh, let's uh, move to John Company. Then. Sure. That, that, Absolutely. Was, that, was, yeah. that was the next game.
0: That was the next game. Uh, John Company started. I mean, it was probably I've been working on for a long time, and I think in, when I wrote the little design. Whenever I uh, publish a game, I always put like a little, this is the history of the design essay, right. where yeah. I try in like a few paragraphs to give like the bird's eye mm-hmm. view of how the game got made. And John Company's is funny because it says like, well, I tried in 2009 and it didn't work. And then in 2013, I tried again, in 2015, <laughs> I tried again. And part of the problem was I needed, so there were, there were two difficulties. So one difficulty was scope. Early versions of John Company were about all of the India companies. Okay. And like, okay, so we have the French India Company and the Dutch India Company, and the
1: British India Company. What was what was your goal at the beginning?
0: The, the the goal was I wanted more games about history that were about institutions and about the history of trade because it felt like every game I played about history was just about war and politics. Right, so and you so wanted I, to
1: get away from a state. I you want to get wanted to away get from to a state a company and obviously they're are a super good example right? yeah you know, well like it, it, weird... because
0: because they're companies that kind of behave like states yeah right exactly. so like okay well, we'll start by going not like to GE right? <laughs> but, you know we'll, we'll go a little closer yeah
1: and well then, the the ambiguity is what makes it such mm-hmm. a bizarre period of history yep. of like what did they think they were doing and what were they really and they were defining their role different times in different ways and anyway. and but,
0: then and then I had a second a second draft said okay I can't do this on an internet like I can't do this in a comparative way, I don't want to compare like the Dutch East India Company to the British East India Company. Right. What if, what if I just did all of the different imperial charters? So you could play like the Virginia Company, uh-huh. the Levant Company, the Hudson Bay Company, and the East India Company, because there was competition in between those those charters. And that also didn't it didn't work. I mean, I, I you know it it, did, it both didn't work mechanically, but even something not working mechanically is never the end of the world. Because you can fix a you can right. fix a mechanism, but I, I, I wasn't even it wasn't even clear what I was what I was trying to say. And then I remember I wrote myself like a little design memo, where I said, "Okay, what is what am I actually trying to do here?" And I, I and I was like, "Okay." So I wrote kind of what I told you. I was like, "Okay, I'm going to try to do institutional history. I'm going to do history of business, not the history of states." And then I was like, "Well, I actually have like this other question, which is, I don't know why the East India Company happened. Like, if mm-hmm. you look at the founding documents of the East India Company, if you look at the the old East, so the East India Company kind of got reincorporated in the early 18th century. Mm-hmm. If you look at like the old East India Company and then you look at, you know, 1857 and then you look at, you know, the 1940s and like the apogee of the British Empire, those things don't follow. They don't necessarily, it doesn't make any sense that they went from like, we're just here to trade like Muslims to mm-hmm. we now are, like, drawing taxes and building schools and railways and, like, committing a- atrocities across the subcontinent. Like, these things are not necessarily connected. And what, what I found was when I started reading the history is that everyone was unhappy with everyone else. It was, mm-hmm. it was one of the strangest things. You know, you would, like, I think about Clive being victorious at Plassey, coming mm-hmm. back to England, and then, like, getting shunned. And I thought, well, if the Brits are, like, truly, like, the arch villains of history, and right. I, there's a good argument for that then surely they would have, like, given him a trophy. They
1: wouldn't have behaved like that, Yeah, right? they wouldn't
0: have behaved. Like, there's something kind of funny going on here. And what I realized was that there was – I was trying to figure out why is this company behaving in such idiosyncratic ways. And I had done a lot of work on the trial of Warren Hastings, which is – I mean, basically there's a lot of resentment at home for nabobs, people coming back loaded – Mm-hmm. And there was a sense that they were getting their their wealth unfairly. And really this is an old money, new money oh, battle okay. sure. that, that's happening. <laughs> but Hastings, Hastings is especially interesting because there are things about his administration as governor general of India that are really positive. I mean, he's building a lot of infrastructure. He cares deeply about the people of the subcontinent. And also he's stealing a lot and doing some bad stuff as well. And the, you know, the people who who really put him on trial, and here I'm thinking of like Edmund Burke, mm-hmm. like they're, they're they're making an argument that is like uh, fundamentally kind of isolationist, mm-hmm. and so there's a very weird thing happening where like the cosmopolitan actors are, like, at war with more of the provincial... I mean, Burke's a founder of conservative thought, and he's... So
1: they're saying, like, we shouldn't be doing these things. Yeah, because, like,
0: yeah, you're going native or something, to a degree. And especially, I mean, in the 18th century, there's an amazing book by William Darwimple called The White White Mughals," which is just about, like, intermarriage, Mm -hmm. and the degree to which company actors and the kind of luminary families of India were kind of one block. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I thought, okay, well, this is this story isn't making any sense. What's going on here? I I started realizing that the company wasn't behaving in logical ways because it it isn't a single unit. And that's what made me realize that I couldn't have a game that had a bunch of different companies because I couldn't have the correspondence be one-to-one from player to company Mm -hmm. because the company – Behaved in ways that are really idiosyncratic that only makes sense if you think about it as like a single It's like playing the, that weird flash game quap where everybody's <laughs> only pr- pressing one button mm-hmm. And you're like try I used to do this with, with my with my students in a digital rhetorics class where I'm like, okay, we're gonna play quap, but you each get like only one, one key, letter right. and you're like trying to You know get players to, to talk to each other about, you know moving the hamstring or something and the East India Company behaves that way and, and in fact I, I saw this, I saw this really interesting talk by uh, an economist named Marty Asen. Uh, he's a brilliant Indian economist and he said that, you know, w- one of the fundamental lies of economic theory is that the atomic unit of an economy is a single actor, a single purchaser, the economic man, it gets called sometimes. When he's like, that's not true at all. You, uh, churches, families, it, you know, it, it's really informal, and formal organizations are the elemental unit mm-hmm. of an economy. And it's important to make that distinction because they behave completely differently than in individuals. Mm-hmm. They don't behave rationally. Sometimes they behave more rationally. Um, and it's a little bit like uh, there's an economist who who used to teach at um, at Indiana named Eleanor Ostrom, who did all this work on the tragedy of the commons. Mm-hmm. And her 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 big realization was that. Um, the tragedy of the commons is a cute economic idea and it rings true to us when you read it in the abstract. Right. But if you look for examples of it in the world, yep. you don't find it. Hmm. And right. so she used the example of like fishing villages in, in Norway where you're like, well, you know, here they're managing like, a, you know, a bay, you know, a, a, a fishery. And you would expect, because the, the, the fishery is not owned by anyone, that it would be depleted. But actually what happens is all of these, organizations spring up around it, and sometimes they are informal and sometimes they're formal, but they're managing the commons really well, despite not having ownership over it. Right. And so I realized like, okay, if you're gonna tell the story of the East India Company, part of what you have to capture is the idiosyncrasy of, of the institution. And so I started approaching the problem saying, all right, imagine there are these families, which there were, and I read this book by uh, Sutton called uh, the Maritime Service of the Company which was really just about families that had two or three generations of, of work in, in, in the company. And I started realizing that these are usually, these were people who were in the upper middle class, but they had run into walls. You know, mm-hmm. Maybe they had had relatives that had lost a lot of money. Maybe they, just, you know, they were mostly country doctors and they, they kind of dreamed of moving to the aristocracy. And they saw the East India Company as a way of doing that, that right. work. And you get a lot of Scots-Irish I mean, sure. that, that moved to the US for similar reasons. Um, and so they're going into the company saying, ultimately, we want to cash out. So we're here for a little bit. Right. We want to put ourselves in a prosperous place, and then we're going to kind of come back. We're going to go back, yeah. And then within the company, you have these different factions that are basically, if you think about you know, every, every niece and nephew you send off to India being part of a gambit where you're like, you're going to work in the army, you're going to work in the army, you're going to work in the army, and I'm going to really hope that the armies are going to go Conquering and then or if you put all your nieces and nephews in a you know in a trade footing well Then you want a different kind of trade situation happen, to happen yeah. and then what ends up happening is you have these like weird factions and I think oftentimes the way I tend to understand the company if I have to simplify it is Fundamentally you had a military component and you had an economic component to the company mm-hmm. and they did not like each other Because they were constantly creating trouble, but also opportunities for the other party, right? And so, you know, I mean Clive when Clive went to Pl- Plassey, he barely had permission for anything he was doing. Mm-hmm. And then it just so happened that one of the things that he secured after Plassey was taxing rights. And mm-hmm. so suddenly a single person is getting the taxing rights of what would have been handled by, by a state yep. b- 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 before. And then the, the East India Company has to build suddenly a bureaucratic apparatus to hold the things that these like kind of rogue agents are are, are, are taking in. Um, and so as soon as I started realizing that, the whole cast of the game changed. And I I, I, th- I, I looked at Republic of Rome again very closely to see how it worked. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, it was just, I
1: was just thinking of the Romans when you're yeah, yeah, like, yeah. oh, I, so-and-so accidentally conquered this and now they're- Now we have you know, to deal with it. You know, it's <laughs> all, like, all these taxes that they have. And what well, I mean,
0: doing. it's the same. I mean, people were, were so, yeah, I mean, like Caesar's such an interesting figure in all this because the the, the Senate was like barely, I mean, it's funny. To say, the Senate barely tolerated T- Caesar, indeed, to right. the point of stabbing him. <laughs> um, but right. but it's a, it's a similar kind of dynamic where you there's an incentive structure in place that is creating bad actors, mm. and and so you want to you want to have that have that be captured. But I also had played this game Kremlin, which is not a good game, but it is sort of funny. Um, where you have these officers who are kind of moving up through uh, the political borough, right? and like moving up up the Kremlin. and um they get old and die. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, oh, well, that's that's interesting because that happens in Republic of Rome, too. You, mm-hmm. you, your guys get old and die. yeah. and 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 this did something where it put the game at a very human scale, where right. I'm like it isn't it isn't just that you're in charge of this army. You're in charge of this army, but your guy isn't going to be around forever. forever. yeah. And so, that then gave me this like weird design idea, which said, "What if you build a kind of negotiation euro, but most euros are built on this exchange uh, inflection point, where you go from generating infrastructure to generating victory points? Okay. Right. So you're like, I'm going to build, 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 and at a certain point, instead of building, I'm going to spend my resources getting, getting right. victory points. And I said, what if you built a negotiation? You, you built a game where that inflection point wasn't controlled by the players. So the game says." Hey, your guy wants to go home. He's done being in India.
2: Mm, How much right. money
0: do you have to retire? Right. And if you don't have money, are the other players going to loan it to you?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so that, that like central part of the game is what turned it into a negotiation game. It, it's what gave, gave the game its like very human focus. Uh, and then the whole design kind of sprang out of a, of a desire to then take that, that understanding of the period and that kind of mechanical hook. And graft it into like a like a strategy game, and it was I mean, uh, John Company is tricky because it was built in almost in like little segments. Where I'm like, okay, I need a segment that handles like how budgeting worked, right? How trade worked, how the military stuff worked. And I just kind of like slowly, you know, I, I it was the most modular design I've ever worked on. Where right. we just like bolted little systems onto it.
1: Okay, I know someone played it described it to me as a, somewhat of a satirical game design. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't played it yet, so I'm not quite sure what that meant, but, like, does that make sense to you? Oh, it it
0: is. So it, it's so funny because John Company is... Um, I think it's probably the game I'm proudest of of any that I've worked on, and it is very serious. But it is also the game where, like, people shout at each other and, like, laugh, and, like, it is so weirdly joyous to play because the game... Um, it It's very silly, and it mm-hmm. has... I, I wanted... Um,
1: what the, makes it so silly? Is it the
0: um It's the way that the game uses random. The, 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 it's the way the game uses the dice. Okay. So John Company, um, it's a game about trading in the 18th century, so uncertainty has to be a really big part of that picture. Mm-hmm. And I designed the dice on purpose to be controllable but also have some baseline noise. Mm. So you're going to roll the dice a lot, which means unlikely things are going to happen. Right. Uh, it's like one of the, the, the wonderful paradoxes of working with random. Yep, you sure. know, And I was like, yes, you know, you, you, and, and I think it's, it's funny because you can design a game where you say, if you spend enough resources, you don't have any liability. Right. But John Company is built around this, this sort of like, prob- this S curve and its probabilities that says like, you can never fully eliminate the risk. So what will happen is you'll throw the dice a lot in the game to trade in, 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 in India. And eventually people get a little sloppy and they're like, well, we've been passing all of our checks. So, I mean, it's a little bit, it's a little different from a lot of other games that have randomness because you will roll the dice, let's say, 40 times in a game of John Company. Mm-hmm. You will pass 37 of your checks. <laughs> right. So, at some point, people are like, yeah, well, just, it's 80% chance. We'll roll, we'll roll. And then you'll roll eight dice and on a chance of, like, 1% fail. Right. Because it's going to happen. And suddenly, everything gets thrown out the window because right. now there's a run on the bank. Yeah. And it... Generates because the, the the core narrative currency of the game are people and families and marriages. When there's a run on a bank in India, it's like oh no, now we can't get our money out to retire my nephew. We're borrowing money here. We're going yeah. to debtors' prison, and it it creates uh, it creates like these very 19th century novel moments mm-hmm. where like you know Magwitch goes off to New Zealand and makes you know makes a ton of money or something. And one of the people who played the game once told me that it felt like a Victorian novel generator, mm. which is like the kindest thing anyone could ever tell me about that game. It's exactly <laughs> what, what it's trying to do. Right, yeah. Um, and I, I had been reading, you know, uh, the, I've worked on this novel uh, by William Makepeace Thackeray called The Newcomes*, which is entirely about like a run on an Indian bank and how it like ripples back and right. destroys a family in England. And that was a tension that I really wanted. I also felt like that... I think that the, the, the novelistic frame was important for two reasons. One, um, it gave players a way of engaging with a pretty serious subject that allowed them to have a little bit of a distance from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was very careful in the art and the presentation of the game to like make all the British characters look weird and ugly. And you know, like it, by using Gilray and, and Rawlinson yep. cartoons, and, and there are a couple exceptions to that, but that's mostly how they look. And then the other thing it does is. People at the time thought about their lives in those terms in the same way that, you know, whenever we watch like a piece of prestige television, we recognize it as like, oh, you know, this is the world that we live in. And even if it's a heightened version of it, like, I don't know, Better Call Saul or something, like watching that as a lawyer Mm -hmm. and being like, oh, I see that this is cartoonish a little bit, but it's also a way that I'm imagining my own like life and work a little bit. And people living at this time thought about their lives in novelistic terms, and so sure. it made sense to have that be the way the world was, you know, kind of presenting itself. Right.
1: Cool. Um, so you revisited it recently, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, what uh, what were you trying to, to change about it? Like, what what is it that you wanted to do differently?
0: Well, John Company was a game that uh, it it could have always taken more time to do. Sure. And it was it was a game that ran into so I, I mentioned earlier that Phil's games were always built around German postage rates and very well. Very part of the reason why I was I think I was a good fit for Phil is I would never go over budget. Yep, yeah, sure. You know, it's like the, the old the old piece of advice in the game industry is like don't lose money. Yep, <laughs> you know, right. the, the classic like don't lose money, finish things on time, uh, it'll just make <laughs> it'll m- make your whole your whole life easier. Mm-hmm. And with John Company, it was the first time that like we cut rules out of that game because we were so close to one kilogram mm. that I was like, I gotta cut the rule book down. And so I was like removing pages from the rules Jeez. because I couldn't have it go over. And there were all these things about the production, like we knew that we could only have a certain number of cards in the design. Yep. And so there were all these things that I wanted to put in the game. And in fact, in, in John Company's case, I think we could only have one deck of cards. So they always print d- uh, cards in these either 50, uh, 54 card decks if it's a poker size card mm. or a 60 card deck yep. if it's bridge. And I was working on the game and said, OK, I really want to do like an event in India phase. Mm-hmm. But what do I have? And I'm like, well, I've got some dice. And then I have literally eight cards left in my card sheet that I haven't used. And so I built the, int- the, the first edition of John Company. The entire like algorithm that runs the events in India is on eight cards, right. which have these like funny tables and they sit on top of each other and kind of show different icons and you, you roll dice to resolve it. And it's a cute piece of design. But... There was a lot that couldn't be done because of how it was presented. Yep. And so when Drew and I started, uh, when my brother and I started Gig to, uh, to do the history games, we wanted to do John Company right away. That was really the, the main one that we wanted to do. But we were like, you know, let's take, go slow, really think about the design. And, so, and we also want to make sure that we know what we're doing before we do it. So we, we, we did Premiere first as a, like, testing the water, right. you know, making sure that this is financially feasible. And then with John Company... What I wanted to do was to find ways. So I had, you know, all that stuff about the satirical and the novelistic storytelling. Uh, that's stuff that's very subdued in the first edition of John Company. And it's subdued because your family members in that edition are cubes. Okay. And in the second edition, we spent money to, like, print little cameos yeah. on little wooden circles. And the first edition doesn't use very much art. In fact, the first edition players will watch people playing it and not realize that the game is about India at all because there's no, like, mm. map of India yeah. and said, okay, we've got to put a map of India. And, in fact, if I look at every prototype board of the second issue of John Company, one thing that happens is the map of India starts very small in the corner and it just slowly gets <laughs> larger and it kind of scales up yeah. proportionally to the point where it takes up almost, almost half the board. So that was one, like, group of things I wanted to do. And then the second thing was uh, John Company has this insane twist in it, which is, it's a funny thing to spend so much time talking about John Company, and now I've mentioned the twist of John Company, which is, in 1813, uh, the British government revoked the British East India Company's trading charter. Right. And so, one goal of the design was that if you're playing John Company, and you play the full campaign with all the bells and whistles, when the company deregulates, when it loses its trading charter, players can start their own trading firms. hmm and they're essentially building miniature john companies within john company. Mm-hmm. And so I thought okay, well this is a really cool thing that I really want to work in a game. And I got a version of it working in the first edition, but it never got the development it needed. It wasn't mm-hmm. like it wasn't very well balanced because I was at that point finishing my dissertation, we were trying to move, we've had just had a kid, <laughs> yeah. kid number 2. I was crazy busy. And it, we got it working like well enough, but For the second edition, I thought, I really want to make sure the private firm game is working really, really well. And so we, in the course of the development, we kind of finished most of the second edition of John Company and then spent about half of the development just focusing on the private firm game and making sure it was balanced and creating really interesting tensions. Because I especially wanted to show the weird parasitic relationship between these small private firms and the sort of like... Corpse of East India Company that they were harvesting, and there are instances where the private companies will essentially like, you know, contract out security from the company, or they'll 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 build on different trade, you know, different trade patterns, and uh, or you know they'll build on they'll build different kinds of trade arrangements where they'll kind of alley oop for each other, or they can have a very hostile relationship and just be at you know at odds. And it was important if I was going to build this big sandbox game about the history of the East India Company that. The private firm game worked. And so when you play the full campaign of John Company, deregulation is a tool that the players have, that the the prime minister player has in particular, which is a a position that players can compete for. And if the company's in trouble, one thing you can do is you can opt to deregulate it. Mm -hmm. So if the company is going to collapse and the game ends when when the company collapses, one thing you can do is you can say, okay, uh, everybody, let's deregulate the company. That's going to increase its standing, it's going to fix its financial picture, but now players can start competing with, with the company. And it, it does a, a lovely thing in the campaign mode because that can happen in 1740, Right. as it almost did several times. The mm-hmm. company was always on the verge of deregulating. You know, I mean, Oliver Cromwell almost did it.
1: Right. Um, wow, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's a funny thing. Cool. Yeah, so let's uh, let's jump into uh, Root. Um, tell, uh, I mean, I. You don't necessarily be as much of like how it happened, but like I'm just curious about you know, what? You know, it's got a super asymmetrical design
2: mm-hmm.
1: What what were you trying to do at the beginning of, of the project? Was that the was that the kind of the goal? I, I can only imagine so it started
0: with a concept document that Patrick had written Where he had done this game vast which was an adventure game that was asymmetric where one player plays the monster, one player plays the hero, one player plays the setting itself. And he had, he, had, he had written this little design brief that said, what if we could do this with a strategy game? And so there were actually a bunch of different variants of it. One of them was a, a 4X game where every player was like a different X. Okay, and, um, <laughs> which was always kind of a busted. Idea. I mean, even the, uh, just saying
1: that—that's a crazy idea. But anyway, right. Go ahead. Well, it, it,
0: it's, I think it's a busted idea because the term "4X" to me is like a horrible term of design because it's so nondescriptive. Yeah. So I always tell people, like, "4X" is like a, the marketers can have "4X." Like, yeah. as a design principle, don't tell me like, "Yeah, it's this not, is my it's 4X." Not very
1: useful. What's even worse is like they start using it for mobile games. Um, There's this category of <laughs> mobile 4X games which is not at all even what. Mm-hmm. Anyway. It,
0: so, so he had this other designer, and I was actually when I was originally hired, I was helping this other designer work on their their Four X game, which we couldn't get to work. Um, and then he said, "Well, what you know, if you had to make an asymmetric strategy game, how would you do it?" And he had a, he had a little prompt where he's like, "I kind of want," and I'm like, "What do you mean by asymmetric?" And he said, "Well, one player is like, they've got a big kingdom, they're trying to like build an empire. Another player is like a single actor in the in the empire, like a, like a single hero." And I said, "Okay, well, I'll think about that," and I. The first thing that sprang to mind were um, the coin games, which is the, the series of games by GMT that basically look at these different moments of counterinsurgency, but they have a kind of similar template for how they, they treat it, which is to say, there's a government player and their biggest responsibility is stability. And then you have an, an insurrection that is the threat to the stability and then, in order to fight with the insurrection, they will oftentimes court paramilitaries, which behave like an insurrection but against insurrection. And then you oftentimes have like an opportunist, who might be, you know, in the context of a game like Cuba Libre, be the casinos or the cartels in the context of Andean Abyss. And so I, I, I thought about this and thought, oh, if we're making an asymmetric strategy game we should use that framework and so i said okay instead of there just being an empire this is like a player who is responsible for policing and they're mostly interested in development and commerce and then i was like, okay well we want like an insurrection that is trying to like institute a new order and then for the single hero role we'll have like a roving opportunist who's mostly interested in their own bona fides and then we need some kind of i want an external threat Mm -hmm. Um, and so that led to the kind of initial four factions of Root but I had played a lot of Vast at that point and had some problems with how the design worked and the biggest problem was that it lacked uh, a a shared grammar a shared vocabulary that allowed the players to be able to see what each other were doing Um, and and this is a really important part of of any kind of strategy game because you have to, the other side needs to be intelligible right it's one of the things that is so frustrating about like learning a MOBA game, is there yep. so many heroes when you start playing that you're like, I don't even know what this player can do. So we might as well be playing different games. Yeah. Uh, it, it, in contrast, you know, with something like a more traditional RTS. So you know, I was I was trying to think about how do you build a strategy game where there's a, a strong enough shared grammar that the players can imagine what each other's capabilities are and react to them. And so I I, I looked at Vast and said, okay, the problem with Vast is that. Everybody, it's asymmetric, so everybody's moving and fighting differently, et cetera. I said, what if we just said like, here are the rules of movement, and here are the rules of fighting, and and those are gonna be the same for absolutely everyone. So I tried to give like some shared verbs to the game, and then had these like really simple inversions. So you know, in in the combat system in Root, you throw two dice, and the attacker does the higher value, and the defender does the lower value. But if you're playing the insurgent, the defender does the higher value, mm-hmm. and it was just a very simple inversion that players could know. Like, okay, I know that you use these dice differently in ways that make it hard to attack you, right? And so we we built the design uh, kind of around that that premise, and then we went to, we went to Kickstarter to fund it, and the game did really really well. And something about the presentation and the theme just resonated in a
1: way that we that was outside well, yeah, to our expectations. Yeah, what was the key to like that that success? Well,
0: we had originally. I originally designed it kind of as a generic fantasy game. It didn't really have a theme on purpose. Mm-hmm. And then Kyle, uh, Patrick had been working this other game with Kyle, and Kyle had always loved drawing these like anthropomorphic animal, cartoony animals sort of in the line with, with Disney's Robin Hood. Yeah. And Kyle said, well, we could use these. And it created this really amazing... Um, I hate to use the word synergy, but it's a synergy. A, a really amazing uh, consequence, which is most... Games, especially we talked earlier about um, sort of Euro games and the very um, robust mechanical puzzles that were made in the in the mid two thousands. A lot of those games, even if they were about war, um, would have very abstract concepts. And so, in order to convince people the game was actually about war, they'd use like really violent art. And Mm -hmm. my, my my poster child here is Adrian Smith's drawings for Eric Lang's Blood Rage. Okay, Blood Rage. Everyone's like ripping off each other's heads, they're all very brawny. But the actual game is like a pretty, it's not bland, it's a good drafting game. But it's just a drafting game. Right. And so what what the theme is doing in that instance is making the game seem more violent and more adult, because the actual design is not doing that work. Right, okay. And, And what happened with Root was the original concept I made was so mean that players would get very prickly when they were playing with each other because you could really like damage another player's player position. But as soon as we put Kyle's art to it, it helped um, give players permission. It, it sort of turned the, the thing into like a Saturday morning cartoon. Mm-hmm. where people didn't mind the violence so much. So instead of the, instead of the art like, pulling the game into its theme, the mechanics were pulling the game into its theme and the art was making it a little bit more palatable. It was turning down the temperature some. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you, so you, you could still sort of like have that like high action moment but it was more permissible because we were in a cooler environment. Hmm. Um, yeah, and it was, it was just something that we, we just kind of stewed on together. And then we had all these conversations about the, the physical production that were related to it. One of them was about if we should use miniatures. And Kyle is a big advocate of um, what sometimes gets called like a deco-rationalism, which is to say when you're doing, when you're doing design, uh, product design, aesthetic design, you should be trying to build something that, has logic within the world of the game. Mm-hmm. So Root should look like a game that is played by people living in the world of Root. Right. And so he opted for like a wooden piece design. He was right. like, we, I said, like, I really do want to use miniatures, because miniatures always look like video games, because they look like 3D renders. Um, let, let's do wooden pieces. And then I was like, well, I have this problem with meeples, because oftentimes meeples are designed in very elaborate ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't look like anything. Because if you have a bunch of wooden pieces on the board, and the shape of the wooden piece Has a lot of vertices. It's just going to look like a blur. Mm -hmm. And so Kyle said, "Okay, well, I'm going to draw them to be very simple shapes." And so he kind of had this heightened abstract presentation for for the the root meeples. And as soon as he did the first draft, we were like, "Okay, that's the look of the game." Right. It all got looked in. It all got locked in. And then it really resonated with people. We raised all this money. And one thing that that people demanded almost instantly was like, "Where are the other factions?" Mm -hmm. And so that then. How
1: much of the design was done at this
0: point? It I mean, was barely done. You could play it, uh, but only the first four factions were kind of fully sketched out. Right. Um, one of the factions did not really work at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was solvable, but we'd only been working on the game. When we, when we talked the game to Kickstarter, we'd been, we'd been working on it for about two months. Right. Um, so we had, a, we had a look. The, the cat faction and the, um, the bird faction were the most designed. The Woodland Alliance was, in a huge, was, in a me- was a mess. It was very hard to, to make work. And then the, the Vagabond hadn't been worked on very much, but it was, it was functional. Um, but w- people wanted us to do more work, but we hadn't designed the rules to actually be expanded. Mm-hmm. And so as we, after we raised the money and realized that we were, because one of the things that happens with the crowdfunding is part of what you learn is how long you're able to work on the game. Sure. Right. So if, if, if we would have only raised, you know, a quarter million dollars, we'd have been like, okay, let's just get it done and move on to the next project. But we raised enough money that we said like, okay, we can give this about a year. Mm-hmm. And so part of what we did was expand the framework so that it could be meaningfully expanded. Right. Um, we, we built s- some new factions. We were able to add another map, all that kind of stuff.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, you see bits in the rules all over. It was like, okay, this is what it means to rule. This is what it means to move. Right. And this much. And it's, like, it's like, okay, this seems like it's spelled out very sp- particularly... And then it only makes sense more when other expansions come along that yeah. do weird different things with those rules, you know.
0: And, and even then, we only thought we'd ever do one expansion for Root. And then so whenever an expansion comes out, Josh, uh, the editor, and I like will go in the rules and be like, okay, we have to rewrite the battle rules. Right. So they're more knobby so that we can
1: plug in other systems into them. Right. Um, yeah, the because really a lot of the rules could be written a lot simpler yes. if the game would have just been the, first, the four right. factions. Um, okay. Um, did you have... Um, Like, what were some of the major challenges in trying to get, like, these very different, you know, factions to work together? I mean, uh,
0: part of it was figuring out how to... I mean, I had never made an asymmetric game, so I didn't really have any sense of, like, what it meant to test an asymmetric design. And I think, you know, some asymmetric designs are actually kind of easy to test because you make one thing work, and then you say, okay, that's done, and you move on to to the next puzzle. But because I was very insistent that I wanted the uh, interaction between the factions to be... um, Truly multilateral. So I wanted there to be, the the, the litmus test I gave myself was that players should always have a reason to be friends with another faction or to work against them. And so that meant that we had to constantly revisit factions that we had already completed to make sure that it was harmonizing with all the parts. So we kind of had this, uh, this big wheel where I'd go through and work on one faction. Once it was ready, I'd go to the next one. And then once we'd gotten through all the factions, we just started it back over. Um, this was made possible because we had some really good testing groups. I mean, Mm -hmm. Root was mostly made, and this is actually something that that has really changed my own practice. Root was essentially designed by three groups. It was designed by the four of us in the office. Right. It was designed by uh, one group that we had that was based on the East Coast, and then it was designed by one, essentially my brother and some friends who were living in Chicago.
1: Okay.
0: And those were the three groups that played Root by far the most. Right. And... We had to, uh, you know, manage some. There was some. There's some version control stuff that had to be sorted out, and we had to make sure that we weren't um, fatiguing our playtesters too much. Uh, but mostly, um, we didn't have any. I, I, at, that, at this point, I had never managed any kind of project that I had to staff. Mm-hmm. All the projects I had worked on to this point were just me working by myself, right? With some testers, and this was the first time where. I had to submit an art request list to, yeah. to the artists. I had to think about like, oh, this is our Friday version. We'll be testing it for three weeks. And then you know how are we going to get that, that information? So most of, most of the development of the route was just brute forcing. I mean, I there's probably so much wasted effort in that first expansion because we were just brute forcing through uh, whatever problem we had. So if we ever ran into a problem, we'd say, OK, let's just play the game five times. We'll try to solve it by the end of all those play tests. Right. Um, and it worked. But it was um, it was probably extremely wasteful and certainly exhausted
1: what's what's <laughs> the years. better alternative?
0: Well, I think I could have spent some time modeling the game a little bit and spe- specifically things like um, The way combat worked like I, I, I really the roots combat system was designed almost entirely organically. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't you know I didn't have any like key insight. I just sort of went like okay I need the attacker to be a little bit stronger than the defender I want kind of like this dynamic range. And we tried a bunch of different dice systems and this one kind of felt the best. So we just sort of went, went through it. Whereas these days, I feel like I spend a lot more time doing design outside of the context of an iterative loop. And because what will happen is you'll, you'll see something and be like, well, I know that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And so you just, I'm not even going to bother putting it into an iteration. We can just scrap it. And with Root, we tested a lot of versions of Root where we'd play like half a turn and say, oh, it's busted. Right. You know, just go back and kind of re- rebuild it.
1: Okay, so that's interesting because that's you'll hear a lot from designers just how important like an iterative loop is to yeah. making good games, right? So, what you're saying is that there's some parts of the design where you really can't, or it shouldn't be done that way. If I'm if I'm reading that correctly, yeah, I, I, no, I just like to hear more about like what do well, you mean by that? The,
0: the one piece of advice I always give to new designers is that like understand what the iterative loop is and do everything you can to make it as tight and short as possible because the longer and more complex your iterative loop is the harder it is for you to play. Right. One way to think about it, you know, to put it in game terms is the unit of time in game design is a cycle through the iterative right. loop. Yeah. And you are going to, you know, whenever that happens, guess what? Like you're exhausting your team, you're exhausting yourself. And so, uh, you know, you're going to have to go through that cycle a lot and you can lower the exhaustion by being smart about what is composed in the iterative loop, like what you're actually doing to iterate, but also by realizing that certain times you don't need a play test to realize that something is is busted. Right, and, and that I mean I think I feel like that is the biggest difference between myself as a designer six years ago and now, is I will look at something and be like I see that this is busted without a play test.
1: Right. You're doing the iterative inter- loop in your head. Yeah, essentially.
0: Yeah. Right. So, so it's, it's, still, it's still
1: happening. Is that just based off of your instincts and experience now? Or? Yeah,
0: mo- mostly. And, and, and also, it, it's, it sometimes comes down to like knowing the right tool for, for a problem and saying, like, okay, I understand the shape of this problem such that I'm going to go write a little Python model and run it and just sort of like see what the outputs are, and then that's going to tell me as much as a bunch of play tests. Right. And the other thing that, that has changed is I will play... I feel like I do a lot more uh, playtesting that is looser, where I'll say, you know, I work on this game Arcs, and one of the first things that we did is I said, okay, I've got this action system for this game I'm working on, and I want to test it, but I don't want to, like, answer the question of, like, what is a unit? How does battle work? All that stuff. So what I did was I just set up a game of Root, and I said, okay, we're all the cat. Here are some pieces on the board. Combat's Root combat but here's a different action system. And we would just play some rounds just to sort of feel like, is this action system actually interesting? And that way I don't have to, like, invent some goofy movement system to just do a proof-of-concept test or something like that. And Ro- and Roots testing happened because, you know, we're all sitting in the office, there are four of us, and we've got a printer, mm-hmm. and we're just, you know, r- running a... You know, I'm, I'm printing out a new copy, we're putting it on a table, we're playing it over lunch, and then I fix it, and then we play it again. And at that point in, in, the, in, in the company's life, there wasn't a lot of stuff to, to worry about. I mean, Vast had already come out. Right. We weren't really worrying about it anymore. And everyone was able to just kind of like focus on the, the task at hand. I mean, one of the things I love about working in board games is when I listen to like a GDC talk, it's a retrospective of like what PC games were like in the early 90s. It looks a lot like board games because right. it's like here's a team of five people that made a game,
1: right.
2: and it yeah. took
0: them a year. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and I think our staffs have gotten bigger now, but we're still closer to that world than the, you know the world of digital games.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, what uh, when you're talking about some of the things that that you were iterating on and changing with the game, like can you think of some some good examples of like major changes you had to make mm-hmm. that? you prevented the game from, that maybe was preventing the game from working.
0: Yeah, so the, the biggest one, and this happened right before we launched the Kickstarter, is the way the Erie did its action programming, and it's collapse. So the idea of the Erie was that you would develop these positions, and then as you grew, you would also grow in instability, and then eventually you'd fall apart. And for a long time, I had the instability linked to the size of your armies and the size of your board position. Okay. And it created this like very predictable system where you would just like get a bunch of pieces on the board and then you'd have to take them off the board and then you get other a pe- bunch of pieces on the board. And after you pulled all your pieces off the board, your action potential was so low mm-hmm. that the last third of the game was nonsense. And then at, at some point um and I don't I, I, I wish I had a better understanding of where this idea came from. I realized that I shouldn't be linking the growth and collapse cycle to pieces on the board. I should instead be linking it to something else because what you wanted was a lot of pieces on the board, a lot of action potential, but very few actions because that meant that you were having, you know, it it felt like the feeling of being in Civil War where you're like, there's a lot of capability out here, but I'm only able to direct a very small portion. So I went through all kinds of versions. I had versions where like, actually you would have to fight these little civil wars that there was not enough space in the game to tell that story. And then eventually you moved to a system where I said, okay, the action programming is doing it. You know, you're going to be making these action programs. Those action programs are going to make you stronger, but they're also going to make you a little bit more rigid in what you can do. And then when you suffer collapse, the action program is what you lose. Mm-hmm. You still have all your pieces on the board. Yeah. And so when you start reprogramming, you still have a lot of strength, but it's strength that is limited and pointed. Right. Um,
1: and that was something that just took a lot of, you know, iteration. Sure. Taking stuff away from players... Is, is, is hard? Is, is hard? Yeah, you gotta. Have it's <laughs> especially, especially hard right because that's that.
0: that's the story of like everything. Yeah, you know, like I, I think about um, the old chaosm RPG, Call of Cthulhu, which mm-hmm. inverts the D anD D power curve. Like right. in Call of Cthulhu, you start at your strongest, and yep. then your character gets weaker yep. as the game goes. Which, like, that's how it everything is. That's like every good story. Yeah, um, and it's still so tough.
1: Yeah, one one issue that uh, I run into a lot in like forex design is that. You need to kind of, you know, you're always trying to worry about kind of like snowball effects, yeah. and a lot of times it becomes such a a instinct of like, oh, I gotta prevent the snowball that you end up punishing the player too much for success, mm-hmm. right? And it, it's something you gotta step back and like, well, what's the whole point of this game? Right. It, 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 you don't want to ever put a player in a position where they're like, okay, I could I could do this thing, which means I've just succeeded, but now I'm going to fail because right. I succeeded. Um,
0: you don't want them to underperform. I always think about the game yeah. Power Grid has this problem where the, the turn order mechanism is so critical, which is the idea that like, the players who are losing give this little benefit. Yep. And it's so important that that's the game. The game <laughs> is about using it. And I don't think it makes the game worse, but it does make the game storytelling worse. Yeah. Because you're like, ah, yes, I'm the power company that is deciding not to grow right. so I can like gain market advantage. Yeah, in the next
1: there's no natural the yeah. story there. That doesn't make sense, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I, I I found the area really interesting. I was like, I hadn't seen something quite like this. And yeah, I thought it was kind of uh, it was a, it was a uh, very orthogonal to the rest of them, right? Mm-hmm. Which I guess is the point. Yeah, what right. what um, you said, the woodland alliance were really hard to get to work. Mm-hmm. So, like, what were the what was the versioning there?
0: We originally had a version that basically said they don't have actions. All their actions are just on the cards. And the idea was, in, in the context of root. The deck represents the culture of the map. Right. I mean and maybe even every map was gonna have its own deck and you would have these like if you're playing in this, you're dealing with these kinds of these kinds of critters. And so the wooden lion said, okay, well what about instead of having actions they all the actions are mapped onto the on t- to the deck of cards. So the deck of cards would say every card has like a capability which can be built, it has a suit which is spent for lots of things, and then it also has like a special woodland alliance box. It's like if you use this for its insurgency value, you're going to smuggle some some folks around. And we have this whole system of like hideouts and you're moving these pieces like on a little like submap. And what ended up happening is we ran into the theory of mind problem, which is their, their actions were so obtuse mm-hmm. and were so contingent upon the cards that were in their hand that players couldn't even imagine what they could do. Okay. And so, you know, if you're trying to put like a terrorist cell in a game, if the, the player who's the police person doesn't understand what kind of power the terrorist cell can do, then they, they can't be afraid of them right even if they are powerful and he, and that that second part's really critical because it's going to feel arbitrary if suddenly it's like ah i've i've done my, my big scoop and i'm going to destroy a bunch of your pieces and they say well i didn't have a chance to react to that right and so the
1: they I mean, I had no idea that that could even happen
0: right right and, and so the Woodland Alliance was a very careful um well, wasn't careful at all, but we went through many different versions um, that, that basically we we're, try- were trying to find where do we put the offensive potential of the Woodland Alliance in a way that it is properly telegraphed to the right. other players. So there were, and, and eventually we figured out how, how to do this by saying, you know, actually, the Woodland Alliance kind of only has these very basic actions. And we're going to imagine the faction is pivoting halfway through the game between a system of revolts and sympathy and then a system where they're operating out of bases and kind of playing as a small military power. But the revolts were really important because we were like, okay, we want players to feel like everything that they have in a clearing could be lost very quickly if they're not careful, but they need to have had a chance where they could have stopped it from happening. Mm-hmm. And so they have to put sympathy there, and that sympathy has to wait for a whole turn, and then they can trigger the revolt if they have the proper cards. Um, and, and so like the development of that faction was just about trying to figure out the proper amount of telegraphing.
1: Right. I mean, this seems like this would be a huge issue with the game in general. Yeah, is that? Um, I mean, a lot of the games players learn the game not just by reading the rules, but by watching what everyone else does. Mm-hmm. You know, during during the game, yeah. And that's not helpful at all in root. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very easy to. You know, Even if you've played another faction, you're now in the, in the mindset of your faction, faction, right? Mm-hmm. And you've you've forgotten like oh, this little weird trick about how the cards work for these these, these this group or whatever. Um, I mean, that is it's weird because that, that's the whole point of right. root to some extent. But there is a there has there has to be some complexity limit, right? Like, right. how did you kind of like try to figure out what the right the right target was? So it has
0: to do with so. The, the, there's a fundamental problem with asymmetric games, which is that when you're sitting down to play a game, you need to be able to share something. Right. But if you want to tell an asymmetric game, the whole point is not sharing things. Mm-hmm. And so Root, Root got like a weird get-out-of-jail-free card on this because people got so into the game, they started treating it like a MOBA. Where mm-hmm. they'd say like, ah, I'm going to – and, I, and I, it was so funny. When we first launched the Kickstarter, I had a, a neighbor friend – who was like, oh, I saw your Kickstarter, I'm so excited. He's like, I'm going to main that rat- raccoon. <laughs> and the way he used the word main, I'm like, oh, you're talking about this game like a MOBA. Right. And, I, I, and I thought that was a little bit of a curiosity. And then as I've like watched the competitive scene kind of grow for the game and the way a lot of people play it, like that's exactly how they, how they think about it. And we, we have a kind of development rule when we're working on asymmetric games, which is, it's always a good sign when someone wants to play the same faction a second time. Right. It's a bad sign when they say, okay, cool, I've got that faction, I wanna move on to a different faction. Well, what you wanna see is people wanting to develop mastery. Um, but if people play the game enough, they will internalize so many of those asymmetries that the asymmetries become like weirdly less important. Mm-hmm. Um, or sometimes they become less important. They just kind of fade into the background. And then you have to ask yourself this question, like, well, why the heck do we spend all that, that work on asymmetry? I, mean, I, I think about asymmetry a lot. I don't like designing asymmetric games. I think that in terms of design principles, they're extremely expensive. Yeah. Like every game is yeah, about a sure. complexity budget. And you go to an asymmetric game, you're like, I would like to have the house on the coast. I'm spending all my money on location. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and that, uh, that in, many, in many respects, is just like a bad way to spend the complexity of the game. Right. But what you can get out of it is a sense of a world. It's really what you're getting is immersion, and you're getting a sense that the world is a lot bigger and there are more um, systems at play than the ones that you have direct access to. So we like to, you know, what one rule that we have for Root is that an existence of a faction in a game should change the game for all players at the table. Right. So if the otters are in the game, there's going to be this like weird economy, like trade structure that kind of sits in. And when the lizards are in the game, like people have to pay a lot of attention to like what cards they're throwing away and when they're throwing them away. And we want like every faction needs to sort of like torque torque the whole ecosystem in a particular way. And so it gives you access to thinking about games as ecosystems with different species in them as opposed to just one. Um, and and th- that can be a really nice payoff, but it, I think it's useful to think about it almost in terms of pure liability when it comes to the design, because it is.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it seems like it just makes a lot of things really hard. Well, obviously, it makes things hard, but yeah, but yeah, like, um, you know, you, you you hit how complex a, a faction can be, probably yeah. just so much faster than you would otherwise. Um, let's talk about the vagabond. Like, why why the vagabond?
0: The, I didn't want to put the vagabond in because I thought it was goofy. <laughs> um, I, I, it just seemed like, I'm like, this is a weird, I mean, talk about the great men theory of history. Like this is a single figure who's like moving and shaking, but Patrick was very insistent about it. And, and I said, you know, this is your company. <laughs> You've sold a lot more games than I have. We'll, 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 make a single vagabond. And it is one of the weirdest roles in the game because really experienced root players hate it. Mm-hmm. They think that it doesn't have enough board liability and board liability, they're not, they're more It doesn't have enough. It doesn't have enough of a footprint on the board that it can be really disrupted. It's like too easy. Right. It's too easy to like float above the rest of the conflict. Yeah. It, it doesn't like leave a, a trail of liabilities. Um, it, but it is probably like the most beloved uh, role right. in the game. When I'm at when I'm at a convention, and I'm I'm showing people root. I'll give a little pitch where I'll say, okay, you you know th- this person is trying to build up their empire. This, these are the old invaders coming back. These people are running a you know, an insurgency, and the last player is playing an open-world adventure game inside the, the game. Mm-hmm. And it's at that moment they, like, grab the box for me, and they want to read about it, or they buy it. Right. It's um, a bit
1: of a... It's audacious design.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I
1: mean, it is like... And
0: I think the things about it that I don't like is that it feels... Sometimes it feels... If I'm being really critical of myself, I feel like it's clever for its own good. mm mm-hmm. um, And I think the Vagabond... The other reason I don't like it is the, the Vagabond has... Easily twice as many rules yes. as any other faction, right. and it's weird because players will often start right, with the vagabond and will find it not complex when it comes to play, and it's it, it doesn't feel complex often because it leans on adventure game tropes, mm-hmm. right? Look, I'm gonna move, okay? Exhaust your boot. All right, that makes sense. Um, whereas the wooden alliance is not that complicated, but it's so odd mm-hmm. that it often you know it often is feels pretty pretty complex. Um, the, the Vagabond, though, d- does something, you know, the original conceit of it was thinking about, you know, Yojimbo and trying to think about a role who wanted to play the other players off of each other. Mm-hmm. And so I had this little like arc in my mind that was like, imagine you start the game helping someone out and then they get too strong and then you go to their enemy and you help right. out their enemy. But critically, you need to feel like you're being hunted and you're like a little bit... Um, vulnerable. Yeah, a little bit vulnerable. Like you have to like the Vagabond works best when the other players police you a little bit in the early game and you feel like kind of an outlaw. Right. And it it does a nice it, it it's almost like a a balancing figure where they their their interest in the best Vagabond games is making the game go as long as possible. Right. And being able to like get across the finish line. When the Vagabond is unchecked, their scoring trajectory is a little too fast and so oftentimes it doesn't get to the more
1: interesting parts of the Vagabond's yeah. play. I assume with like a veteran vagabond against a bunch of new players, like it's like. They're a, gonna win. Yeah, almost yeah. certainly. And, yeah. and, and they, they, they're,
0: they're <laughs> gonna win in ways that are, that are
1: that are kind of a bummer, but I don't. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine that might be the least satisfying Root experience, right? Yeah. Because, because, like, because
0: it feels you, like you're the most asymmetric role, so like weirdly, you're not playing the same game yeah. as everyone else at the far. The Someone
1: far just team. came out, you know, from outside the room and told you the game's over or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, um, so Root came out. Um, you know, it kind of had a level of success that's unusual for, yeah. for a board game. How did that feel? Like what, it, tell me about that experience. It, it changed, I mean, it, it kind of changed everything.
0: So when I started, everybody at the company knew that the company was gonna run out of money. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, every, every company has a financial horizon, that's not news. But we all had a sense that we needed something. And you know, usually what we had expected was we would do a game that would do well enough that we would have to do another game. Yeah. And Root did well enough that we suddenly got a lot of slack, right. which meant that we could spend time working on really weird, bigger projects.
1: I'm a little more interested in how it felt for you. Oh, OK.
0: Well, it felt, OK, well, I'll tell you how it felt. So I don't, this is a crazy thing to say, but it's true. I, um, especially at that time in my life, was not super interested in selling games. Okay. Um, I liked making them. Uh-huh. I loved that people liked them. Yeah. But the idea of, like, a game that would win the spiel or a game that would sell 100,000 copies or whatever, that was not something I was trying to do. I wasn't trying to make, like, the next Dominion. Right. And there was a funny thing that happened when I was at Gen Con. Uh, So the year it came out at Gen Con, our booth was swamped. We were in this tiny little alley booth, just like a little 10 by 20, like, strip at the very back of the hall. And the line to get copies of Root went all the way down the hall and out the door. And we were we were completely swamped. We 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 could not sell them fast enough. Yeah. And then at night, Jen kind of at that time there were like no places for public play. There weren't tables, mm-hmm. and so you would usually play games on the floor. Yeah. And at night, I was walking through the halls, like over to the hotels, and there were all these people playing root on the floor, yeah. and they were throwing dice and yelling at each other and screaming, and having a good time. And I remember thinking, like, you know, there's always a game that is like a breakout hit every year. This is just you know the, the way the market behaves. Yeah. And it feels amazing that it's the type of game that I like. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, like, there just hadn't been, like, a breakout game that was a conflict game in a long time. That's true. And so I had this weird, like, I have this weird disassociation with it where, like, the fact that I made the game, it took me a long time to, like, have that sink in. I was more like, wow, it's crazy that all these people are playing a game I like. Mm-hmm. And that was just my, 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 like. my yeah, yeah, that, that was Not like that my, 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 my primary, my yeah. primary. Thought. Because right before we, we shipped root, we, the last game we played in the studio was extre- an extremely strange game. All the favor cards got played. The map was totally bombed out. We were playing the scoundrel on the winter map, so like the map had been kinked in a funny way. And we got sometimes root gets into this weird post-apocalyptic late game mm-hmm. where everyone has like 24 points and nobody can figure out how to get the last six points because sure. they're all so devastated. And it was a great game. And at the end of it, I said, I don't know who's going to like this game, but I'm really happy that we made it, and we'll just see how it does. And and what what happened was just seeing that there were all of these other people who wanted games like this, that it 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 that it really shocked me. It's something that I feel like I'm still adjusting to. Yep. I mean, I I am the like office pessimist. They don't invite me to the print run meetings anymore because I always like the lowest number and when, when root when root came out we sold through the first print run pretty quickly and then we went to a second print run and i remember we like we, we wrote the dates on the on, on the board and had a little betting pool and i was like well i think first print run sold out in two months so let's say the next print run will sell out in like six so it'll sell in april i think it was and it sold out before it got on the boat or like while it was on the boat like it, it, it didn't even make it to landfall like nobody was right in the betting pool and then, and that was the second run, and then the third run sold out, and the fourth, I mean, and, and we're on, at this point, I think the tenth run of the game, and it has, it has shown a consistency of sales and of audience engagement that is unlike almost anything else in the tabletop industry. Um, right. Stores order it, and they say, like, look, you know, the games that sell are like Catan and Root and Wingspan. And those are the ones that are just always, always yep. coming off the sale off the off the shelves. And it's also, it's given me a weird relationship to, to my own work because I feel like when we make a root expansion, I don't start by saying, here are my cool ideas for root expansion. I start by saying like, what are the, what's the community mm. doing? Yeah. Because I feel like in an important way, like it's not my game. It's right. you're it's now g-
1: counter programming for the yeah. community, right? Right. And like, yeah, like, the- it's like cool that
0: we get to be like the the cure, the protectors of root. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a huge, it's a wonderful responsibility and our main goal is like, let's make sure they're happy and that mm-hmm. the game is going in interesting ways. So it has to like, it has to, um, it has to harmonize with our own tastes still. Uh, like we're still in charge of how it's going to grow, but we have a, a responsibility to them yeah. as opposed to, you know, to whatever. Yeah. We it's
1: almost more on. like what we call a live game in video games. Yeah. Right you know, um, that's, that's cool. Uh, I mean, I think in terms of like, okay, a game about conflict and, you know, like those are out of, out of fashion. Like, I mean, I think it's just in the, in the games industry, like there is always a, a kind of like a pendulum thing, you know, yeah. where like there's almost, there was almost nothing that was at one point fun, which will never come back at some yes. point because it's just like, you know, people, people chase us. Like at, at one point in video games, like just the idea of consequence had been kind of sucked out. Mm-hmm. Right before, like XCOM's probably like a great example of one of the games that, like kind of brought that back, right? Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like this thing of like, oh yeah, maybe I should care. <laughs> maybe yes. we have been coddling players too much, and like they've forgotten that like bad things can happen to them, right? And then of course, eventually that goes too far as well, you yep. know. And like, oh, and I, I think about
0: like the rise. It's funny you say that because I, I think about the um, the big swing towards roguelikes that happened right. like a decade ago. Yeah, was. Like the fourth swing back of that consequence, where like permadeath was like, no, I want it to matter right. if my if my run ins, you know, in this silly way or that way. And I think about Spelunky, you know, being part of that. Yeah, like it, it, it's the weird afi- it's the weird affinity between like thinking about Splunky and XCOM, and I, I'm picking on those for a purpose as two expressions of the same pendulum swing, right? Towards a certain kind of design aesthetic. Yeah,
1: yeah um, definitely. Yeah. Um, Cool. Well, let's uh, let's jump to Oath because I know I know you said that like Oath is a little bit of a reaction to Root. Yeah,
0: so I'm all you know, I'm always working, you know, I'm always working kind of against myself. And Oath was a funny game. I mean, there's so much so much to say about oath. So uh, we we, we finished Root and I helped Patrick finish Fast the Mysterious Manor. And then we did an expansion to Root that I mean, Root changes Root allowed the company to live, and then the, the root expansion, which raised I think like 1.2 million dollars or so, that, like, that's when the company went from like five people to ten people, yeah. and we realized that like, oh, we actually need like a marketing person. We can't just be doing this on our on our own. Um, and what that did, I mean, in addition to the fact that it was like, okay, everybody, like, here's money for a down payment. Why don't we all like, you know, we, like, yeah. settle down, and we, like, we're able to like start thinking about the job that we were doing, not just as like a weird, like lark. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I remember Patrick was like, yeah, you know, my company was no longer a midlife crisis. Which, yes. As soon as we were actually right. having those consistent sales. Um, when that happened, it started looking like uh, we could do bigger projects. And, and, and that, that's when, you know, working with Patrick, I kind of told him like, what if we orient our studio? So like there were a few things. One of them, we said, let's make... You know, I read Ed Catmull's book on Pixar and some mm-hmm. other books, and I thought, well, you know, what if we could try to build like a studio where that initiates projects internally, like a video game studio or like a little film studio? We're going to initiate projects within the studio. We're going to take on big projects. We're not going to be afraid to cancel them because we've got slack from root, so we can do big experiments that fail, and that's okay. And uh, what if we try to work on games that are, you know, way too large for a small studio, but way too risky for a big studio. Like I want that to be like the the founding identity of the game. And then, you know, when it comes to the design aesthetic, I'm like, what if our design aesthetic isn't like asymmetric designs? What if it's just about like emergent narratives and like building games that try to do really big narrative work, but without a lot of writing? Yeah. Because I think that like video games are so good at writing. Mm -hmm. It's a great format to give someone a paragraph to read. And board games are horrible at it because of the, of, of the way that the flow break happens. Yep. Um, and so the the initial idea I, I had was I said, "All right, Patrick, I really one of the problems with root." I started. I noticed when people were playing root, they would talk about the game as if it were sequential. Like they would say, "Like oh, like I was winning for generations, and then someone beat me as the vagabond, and like uh, my, my reign was at an end." I'm like, well, "That's yep. weird, because that's like not what's happening in root." <laughs> But there was a desire to, like, arrange things chronologically. And I realized that, like, I was always very dissatisfied with the game of Root because crossing the line, like, what happens is is there there is a moment, there's a pivotal moment where a player will win a game of Root. Sometimes it will happen on the last turn, but most often it happens, like, two-thirds through the game. Right. And And people start
1: to realize it. And And then you're like, okay, you you craft
0: a boot, cross the line, and then the game's over. And I thought, well, I want a game that, like, actually ends when it should. But then in order to do that, there needs to be some kind of, like, stake. There needs to be a, um, there needs to be a consequence to the game that was won a certain way. And I, I kept thinking about that last game of Root we played in the office that was this post-apocalyptic game where we were really behaving in very destructive ways. And I thought, well, the fact that we did that should have a consequence. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that, if that consequence should mean that, like, you deduct victory points off your score because you were a jerk or, or something else. And I realized that the only way you can really judge a player's performance is by forcing them to like live in the world that they had just made. And so I pitched this idea for a game to Patrick where I said like, well, what if, and and this is actually, I I was like, I said, what if every end state was also a beginning state? And you you Mm -hmm. play a game, but the end state it creates is like intelligible as a start state and then you can kind of play this generational game. And I'd actually been working on this idea for a really, really long time, but in a very, I never thought it was even a game. So I, I had this idea for a game um, that I actually, I stumbled into it at my parents' house. I like made it in high school. And mm-hmm. it, it was actually, it was that, that same idea. And I had I'd forgotten I had worked on it, but I'd been thinking about like proper scale for game design. I feel like game design, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier, I I've, I'm always surprised that I am working in the game industry. And then I'll go through like old folders of myself in elementary school. And I'm <laughs> like, like oh, yeah. oh, this is as obvious as it could possibly yeah. be. And yep. I'll find design sketches where I'm like still obviously working on the exact same design problem in a different context. And so, you know, so I started working on this, w- 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 I started working on this idea. And I told Patrick that I had no idea if it would actually work as a board game. And I, and I would only work on it if he, said, if he was comfortable with me working for three or four months on something that I might throw away. Yeah. And he said, go for it, you know, imagine you get, you get six months to just like come up with something. And I built two or three different games that just didn't work. Mm-hmm. And the reason they didn't work is because there were, I mean, there were so many problems. There were problems relating to the physical nature of board games, like how you create a saved board state and then pack it up mm-hmm. to hold the information. That's a big problem. Uh, there were problems with um, how big can a game be? If a game changes every time it's played, what are the to- what, what's the total possible worlds that it can exist in? Like, mm-hmm. how do you make that expressive space large enough? And then, if you're gonna say, all right, well, here's a big circle; these are all the possible versions of Oath that can be played, but then players only play a small part of that circle; they only engage with some systems. How do you make that game interesting mm-hmm. if the game is like only engaging with, with, with some small parts? And so gradually, over, over the, the six months, I started coming with like, coming up with like very basic rules or ideas. And one of them was, um, how much should the world change? So th- this was a, an interesting question that I, I sort of started by thinking uh, I had some core parameters. One of them was, um, it should be possible that so I'm like, okay, you have a world, it's changing. Um, but you probably don't want it to change more than 10%, because if you right. do that, this gets a little bit into the question of like premier and the dominance check and clearing the board. You don't want the world to change too much, because when you read, you know, and, and I actually I, I really admire Old World for for this question of scale, because most Civ games go too fast. You yeah, know, Old World says like no, actually like a couple hundred years is like enough. It's
1: to, plenty of time. Yeah, yeah, it's
0: plenty of time to tell a lot of these stories. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, imagine that, you know, if you look at a little Byzantine village and 700, it's going to be kind of the same as it is in 800. It'll be right. different too, but you, know, it's, it, you, you, you need something like that. So I said, okay, there's a generational scope. The world, about 10% of the world's going to change. So if, and I said, okay, if we, have a, if we have a deck of 56 cards or 52, 52 cards or something, five or six of them change every game. And so I was like, okay, well, that's a baseline. And then I said, I also want... Things, so, you know, in order for the game to work, we have to have like a one in, one out policy with the cards, that's Mm -hmm. very important because otherwise the decks will become unintelligible. And so I was like, all right, so we've got this 54 card deck and we're gonna sub out six cards every game. And then I said, all right, I also want there to be the possibility that things get forgotten permanently or quasi permanently, and also things get forgotten in a like lower step. So I said, okay, imagine you stumble into an interesting thing and then it is not used for a couple games, and you think it's gone forever, but then it shows up in like three generations later. And I was thinking about fantasy novels, and I've been reading um, the Prudane books to my kids, mm-hmm. and, and Kyle really admires Lloyd Alexander's Prudane books too. And so I was just thinking about the, the, the kinds of like legacies that are in those stories, and thought, okay, so how do you do this? Well, one way to do it is to say, you can only use, you only use half the deck. So we've got a world deck, it's, 10% is changing every turn. Uh, every, every game, and then we're only gonna use half the cards each game. And if we only use half the cards each game, then that means that it's a lossy, weird deck. You're not actually sure what's really being added and what's really uh, going away. And so I said, okay, this is great. Um, now how many, uh, like roughly how many cards w- would this create? And so I started saying like, okay, well, let's imagine we have these six different suits that are different elements of culture how many cards could be subbing out. And I started just doing some preliminary math. I'm like, okay, I think the card base for this is like about 300 cards. Mm -hmm. And and, and then I went to to the next very unfortunate realization. So I created this whole like rough idea where I said, okay, there's this much of the game's changing. You know, about this many cards are gonna be the card base. I have this idea of a suited deck and it was Kyle's idea to be like, okay, make it different elements of culture, kind of use like a tarot mentality to think about culture. You want it like, in a kind of metaphorical register. And then I, I did all of this work, and I said, okay, I think that this might be a game. This might be a game. And then I got to the last step and said, okay, I have 52 cards in a deck, let's say, and I'm only using half of them in a game. So I need to design a robust civilization political game that plays with 24 cards, which is, that's almost what a button-shy game is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I because, I, and I, I, had been thinking a little bit about a PAX game. I think PAX games use their, their cards really well. But PAX games are very intensive when it comes to card velocity. I mean, you're going to go through 60, 70 cards in, in, a, de- in a game easily. If you're playing Perfuriano, you're, you're going through even more because the, the market's moving pretty fast, cards are getting discarded.
1: Were you envi- originally envisioning like a market model? Yeah, yep, oh, okay. yep,
0: something like that. Because I, I kind of wanted to, to use a, a rough packs framework potentially. And so I, I kind of came I, I came with this problem where it was like, okay, if we're introducing cards to the game, then how in the world do I make this game run on such a few so few cards. And I said, okay, well, player tableaus have to be very small because I can't have them eating up all the cards. And then we need a shared player tableau, which we'll think of as like the world of the game. And that's eating up a lot of cards. And so there's not very many cards left, but they can't be discarded out of the game because if they're discarded out of the game, the game's going to dry up and it's going to stop working. And so that's what led the game to its like uh zero sum card flow system where you mm-hmm. go to the sites and you can like Draw from the deck to advance the game but you can also draw from the discard piles right and that creates kind of like a rumor soft information economy which is like that that's the market of the game it's just a drafting game um but but the, the reason I'm, I'm spending so much time harping on these specifics is because i think oath was an instance where there were some very high level things that i wanted the game to do and then the actual design process Was not me coming up with a novel solution. It was me being backed into a corner by the demands. That means I can only
1: do this. That means I have to do this. So like, yeah,
0: almost every almost every rule and oath, I felt like I was backed into a corner. That was the only way that rule could could look. Yeah. Um. For better and worse.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, how do you think feel about that now?
0: There are certain things like the combat system is funny because as as we were working on the game, I wanted players to be able to use the combat system um, to kind of compress time so yep. that you could do a lot in one action, but it would entail a lot of risk, potentially. But that led to a combat system that is like a
1: step too complicated for it, its own it good. I was about to use that, was those words. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like I, it's I just, think it's just- It's just somehow each time you have to go back, okay, we gotta oh, go we back. Oh, we gotta and, do
0: this and that. And mm. I think that is like, that doesn't quite hang together well. And actually, I think the biggest mistake of both, and this is something that hopefully we're gonna address with the we're working on an expansion right now for the game. Um, is that I think? Well, there, there are two big problems with oath. So one of them is I think too much is given to the winner of the game to determine the state of the game going forward. Hmm. And I and I think that the the resolution of the chronicle steps is it doesn't give players a lot of room to play. It's not really a game. It's like it, in fact when we used to play the game on tabletop simulator, we just wrote a script Did and had, had the script run. And actually, that was a place where. With a little bit of work, we could have given the players a little bit more identity and a little bit more ownership of mm-hmm. how the how the game state is changing, uh, and so that, that's something I would really like to, to to revise. And the other thing is Oath, Oath suffered from a very weird problem that has nothing to do with with me or the studio or anything like that, and everything to do with the world, which is that we were working on Oath, and then the pandemic happened. Sure, right and. We, the last game of Oath we played before the office closed, like, I mean, literally that Friday before yeah. we left and didn't come back for a long time, we played a version of Oath It was a radical branch with single action impulse, because I was like, these turns are taking a little too long. What if we, like, have single action impulse? And it was cool, mm. and it didn't work, but it was right. workable, and then when we start, and then I was like, oh, God, are we going to be able to finish any games now? Yeah, sure. And so we, we got a little conservative in our design approach, and the long turns of Oath were really easy to play digitally. Mm. Because now we're only doing, you know, right. we're playing a game of both, you're gonna take eight turns. And so yeah. it's like, do your you turn. You want
1: turns to be pretty long in digital. Yeah, in digital games. Um, For various reasons, but yeah.
0: And, and, and a lot of the things like like the Chronicle phase, we're just scripting. And, you know, that that sounds like pure downside, but there was a huge upside in it, which is uh, the pandemic completely changed how we conduct playtesting, because there were all these people who wanted to playtest with us, but their game groups didn't, mm-hmm. and now, like little electrons, they became free radicals, right. and, and, and they could find each other. Yeah, And and then also, because we're doing all of our testing digitally, we were able to switch to more of a software model for game development, where mm-hmm. previously, I would release versions. I mean, th- 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 this gets this rudimentary. I would release versions on Mondays, because somebody would use their work computers to print it out, they'd go to Kinko's, use the paper cutters to print it, they'd get their game to group on Friday, they would teach and play it. But that meant for every version, I knew I was exhausting this play tester. They were, yep. they were going to be going Kinko's for the next 10 weeks. And so I used to, when I was working on Root, when we would do testing, even though Root was mostly made by just a few groups, when we did extra- other external testing, I had like a little heat, like, like a, like a gap chart where I'd say, like, I'm going to burn through this group, I'm going to burn through that group, I'm going to burn through this group. Certain groups were better in the early part of the process, certain groups were better in the later part of the process. And with Oath, what we found was it was like a game in early access. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say, all right, it's Friday, everyone. Here are the patch notes here's the TTS file, go for it. And as we went through the testing process, I had all these like second and third wave testing groups I was going to start inviting to the Discord, and I didn't need to because people would start inviting their friends. and mm-hmm. say like, oh, cool, the game's really stabilizing. We want, we want to play it this Friday. Let's like wait for the new version, and then we're going to excitedly go test out the new features. And so by the end of Oath, our testing Discord had ballooned from 10, 20 people to like 150, and they were playing the game so much more. Right, because a lot of these people, you know, they were working from home now. They had a lot of free time that first year. I wonder if old world, I, I imagine, would have benefited from this a little
1: bit. Yeah, we got a lot more playing, I think, because of that for sure. Well, it, we built we built tools.
0: We had like this digital FAQ for for the all the all the cards, like the oath cards database. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's really interesting because I feel like for sure, you know, yeah, like the world, you know, the possible paths for oath fork there, right? Mm-hmm. Like it would have definitely been a different game if you kept it in the office. Um, but on the other hand, you know, like if you make a, you know, if you make a digital version of it, it's kind of like better prepared for it, yeah. Because you know you were you were playing it kind of already in that format, and that's that's something I'm really interested in. If board game designers are going to start thinking about it a lot more going forward, yeah.
0: Well, and it's something that you know when we when we were working on Oath, we were really conscious of it because we had, at that time Root was being developed digitally, and so as we were working on Oath, we said like, okay, well, let's make sure that it's good, right. Um, for it in a digital space that kind of lends itself to it. Um, and, and actually, it, it was a weird... There are things that digital games do really badly. One of the, one of the worst things is um, extremely disruptive rule modifications or, like, negotiation phases and things like that. Sure. Uh, which is a bummer because, like, that's what board games are, are best at. And yep. so at the very end of Oath, when we were working on it, like, the last, like, 20 cards we designed for Oath, were all the cards with like weird negotiation powers, mm, right. And when we started doing it. we were like, oh, this is like getting silly. Like all the vow cards in oath. I don't know if you've seen any of those yet, but like you get the vow of silence, and you're like, hey, you like can't use secrets. <laughs> and it's it, 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 they're really disruptive. But this was also like we were finally getting so comfortable with the system and saying like, no, actually, these really disruptive powers, they they're opening up the, the
1: game in a totally in a totally different way. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's tricky. I mean, based on what Oath's about, there's no way you could, like, okay, we need to tamp down the negotiation side of the game. Yeah. Like, that's what it's about. And it's true that that will always be a problem. I mean, I don't know, like, maybe, you know, you could find a way to innovate to, to make it work better in digital because it's kind of a necessity, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, the game we're working on now, ARCs, has, like, a huge negotiation component that is handled in a way that I think could work well digitally, but... Um, I haven't seen it. I just, I haven't seen a, a good digital game that handles negotiation really well. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, it's it's just like you're like, you know, I mean, you know, it's from Civ, like when you're making offers to other players and yeah. all that stuff. It just, it's always so slow and so outside of the norm of the game. Yeah. Well, whereas I'm in a board game, it's so fluid. Yeah.
1: I'm already thinking about like the binding agreement cards and yeah. oath. I'm like, those are going to be a yeah. How do you a, do, a, do it? Those are going to be a real pain. Um, like keep you, <laughs> real pain. There was a. Like, there, I, I
0: ran into a person at Essen who told me that. Um, Oath really opened up for him after about the 10th game because they had the tribunal out, which allows players to make binding agreements, and they agreed to mint a new currency that they could use to, 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 to regulate favors for deals that spanned over games. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. And also, like, that, can, that can't happen Yeah, yeah. yeah. At all. I, I mean, one thing we want to do with the expansion, though, is, like, really build out We want, like, different types of governance and arrangements of, like, the way the hegemon works. We want to, like, engage player lineage a
1: little bit. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the other thing I wanted to talk about with was, you know, just the whole chancellor, citizen, Mm -hmm. exile thing. Because that's really pretty unique. And, um, like, when I first went through the rules, you know, I was like, the citizen thing seems like a lot of work. Yeah, (laughs) like a lot of extra there's a there you 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 spent you you blew a lot of the complexity budget on this very specific thing that maybe you could have Maybe you could have not had the citizen. Yeah, but I I could tell it must have been very important to you Mm -hmm. So like well, you
0: know in the way I think it It makes sense in the context of having just worked on premier a bunch Mm -hmm. because premier is all about these coalitions and I wanted I wanted to explain, I was just trying to think about, like, well, how, do, how, do, how, do, how does any government stay in power? Well, it stays in power not because of some social contract, you know, lock nonsense. It stays in power because there are more people interested in keeping it in power right. than, than not keeping it mm-hmm. in power. And that led me to think, like, well, okay, well, you want, you want one player who is, who is the winner of the previous game, who is sort of like, uh, who has set the table and then you've got the other players who are trying to disrupt that and what you need is a player who decides i would like to keep this table set the way it is and i will even like not win and so they need a way to collaborate with mm-hmm. the other players and the citizen structure kind of came from that and it was always it's it was almost always in the game but weirdly was in um very different places in the design. So one of the early versions of the game, all the players started as citizens. There were no exiles. Okay. And what you, you'd start the game, and everyone's like, okay, we this is where we live, this is our home, here's like the hinterland or whatever. And then players could make the decision to leave and then mm-hmm. to be put in an opposition. And what happened was the, the first act of the game was was boring. People yep. didn't really know how, how to work, they didn't have they didn't have anything to orient th- themselves around. And so the, we eventually moved into the kind of hybrid solution where it is now, where it's like the players are going to largely default to be in exile positions. Um, and then the, the second problem that we ran into with the citizenship problem is what is the, what are the conditions under which anybody would, A, offer right. citizenship, yeah. Both sides and of B, accept yeah. citizenship? And this is a place where the design went through like countless iterations.
1: Like I can imagine. And, yeah.
0: and, and, and the way, it, where we settled with it was, you know, uh, negotiations have to do with two players reading the same situation and coming at different values. About, mm-hmm. well, well, right. Well, you know, they're like, "Well, I, I actually think that this is worth more or less," but the way we like put that noise in was the relic offer, mm-hmm. and then that also it has to like the offer has to like weirdly power up both players.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Sure. And when you do that, there's a bunch There's enough noise about how much is this power actually going to give me, mm-hmm. that it started creating space for, um, for there to be meaningful ne- negotiations. And we've actually, re- we, I've run into this on a bunch of products I've worked on where sometimes like the best thing you can do to, to um, lubricate the negotiations is to offer like consent negotiations where you give players, you say like, hey, I'm gonna give you the power to like take a dollar and you can give me the power to take a dollar. Mm-hmm. And then what that does is we could just decide to each make each other richer. Mm-hmm. Or if there's something you want, you could say, well, I will give you a dollar from the bank if you give me this little thing. Right. And that just creates like a little injection of action potential that rewards players for talking to each other and then you know, can, can create, create space for, for negotiations. Right. Um, and people use the citizenship in different ways. I mean, it's one of the, one of the fun things about working on Oath has been that people will tell me like, "Oh, we've never seen a citizen in any of our games," right? And then other times people are like, "Oh yeah, we've had five games in a row where everyone's a citizen, and, yeah. that, and the entire game is just set in that single that single spot." Yeah,
1: yeah. It seems really important to frame for people that like, "Oath" oh, is a specific type of game. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's bordering on role playing. It's right. bordering on like we're trying to make a narrative. Like we're you know like. To some extent, it's not really about victory. I, yeah. I always, whenever I start Arabian Ice with people, like the very first thing I say is like, don't worry about winning. This yes. game is not about winning. Just just get that out of your mind entirely. Forget that that's even a process, but you're going to have a good time. Yep. Like, but you don't worry about winning.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think about this a lot with, with, with Zia, which is usually when we sit down to play Zia, which is a big open world space game. We'll say let's play Zia for a few hours. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. we're like I, don't, I don't. We want not talk about the end. We'll just play for two or three hours, and you know, then we'll stop playing.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, but 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 you get something for. I mean, the, the, one of the things I was really interested in th- this question of like kingmaking when I was working on Oath, and it was funny when I when I gave the GC talk a couple years mm-hmm. ago about kingmaking. I was working on Oath at that time. Right. Oath, I was like, trying to think through it um, because what I wanted players to do is to start caring about certain parts of the design. More than winning, mm-hmm. so that they would make a calculation and say, like, actually, I like this element of play so much that I will behave in suboptimal ways, sure. and that will start opening up whole yep. other parts of the design. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and and that's stuff that I think the design does do. But now that we have a better sense of it, as we're working on new content for the game, I'm like, well, now I know what the game is really about, like yeah. having seen it played and all that stuff. Yeah. Because I mean, this is a funny. I'll say, this is a small note about Oath, but one of the funny things about working on Oath is. It's a campaign game that we almost never played in campaign because during sure. testing we're just working on the single session. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the last couple of months we're like, okay, uh, are all these can we daisy chain these together? And so we we did a fair amount of campaign vetting, but we didn't really know how the campaigns worked when we published it. It was like a theoretical Yeah. you know, version of the game.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and when I'm talking about like kind of like that audience difference of like the expectation, like also like that's a huge contrast from like the root audience. Yeah. Right, and did like some some people actually consider that a major risk to aim for a very different audience from your previous title? Right, you maybe yeah. not even pre- had no perceived I mean, it, it of was, that as the time. Yeah, it,
0: it, it was a risk, and it, it's interesting because when when Oath came out, we it sold pretty well, and then there was this weird soft period mm. where the secondary market got flooded with copies of Oath. Yeah, and that was very clearly like people who bought it but, thinking it was yep. Root Two, yep. and then had sold it, and then thankfully. We're now in this third phase where yep. people who buy Oath now know what they're buying. They're interested in yep. it, and we've seen a nice like long tail start to emerge. That yep. is a long tail that isn't. It's almost like not related to, to root yep. anymore.
1: Um, yeah, a lot of people think of marketing just in terms of selling the game, but like a really important part is like not selling. selling yeah, selling the game to the right people. Yeah, you know, like trying to make that communication. No, I,
0: I love telling people not to buy our games. Like yeah. when people come to my booth, I'm always like, "Look, you have to know that." the game's reward repeated play, and that you're gonna put pieces on the board, and then your significant other is going to remove them. Yep. And if you don't like those things, please, please, please don't buy our game. Because I would much rather have someone who's passionate about it get up. Yep.
1: Cool. All right, well, we're probably close to the end, so one question I like to always mm-hmm. ask, uh, to kind of wrap up is, why, why have you committed your you know, professional career now to making games? Oh my gosh. Just a
0: light, a light question at the end. Um. <laughs> No, that's a, it's a good question because there are other things that one could do. Um, I was thinking about uh, this, is, this is a long answer, but Jeff Vogel had a, he got in trouble for a, a tweet many months ago where he was like, Are there too many people making games? Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, Oh, you're gatekeeping. And he's like, right. No, 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 no. I mean, just like, people could be like nurses and stuff and right. said they're making games. And and maybe we're overallocating in entertainment, right? I mean, I I think he—it was met in a very good, good good-natured way. Uh, It wasn't wasn't, like many things on Twitter taken in that way. Um, But I, you know, when I'm working on a project, um, I actually try to ask myself this question when I'm working on a project: where I ask, I say, you know, is—is the thing that I'm trying to communicate, is it actually a game at all? Like maybe it's a play, and I'm not a playwright, so that means I don't get to make it. Or maybe it's a poem, or maybe it's like an essay. I mean, I actually had this thought a lot when it came to John Company. Where I thought, like, am I actually like trying to write a book about the East India right. Company, and like it's not a game at all? And and what happens is, many of the projects end up being like, oh, this is a game, and I feel like I just have a good footing for making that thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's a funny, it's a funny. You you know, you don't want to. Um, w- when I decided to go to graduate school, I went to graduate school because I thought like, well I'd, I'd gotten really lucky and had a lot of uh, I had a lot of wonderful teachers and I had a lot of things in my upbringing that just made that I was well suited to it and I sort of feel like the games I work on I have a similar kind of footing, um, and so I do it because it it feels like a really good application of my own background and my own interests and you know, I, I always tell people that <clears throat> one of the things I love about working in the game industry is I've never, I've never felt better utilized in my life, which is very, it's a very clinical way of thinking about it. But it is this, it's this funny thing where I've, I've been lucky to pretty much always have always loved my jobs, but there's no job where I feel like it better draws on everything I know how to do than right. working in games. And so, you know, I... Is this I, like the best way
1: for you to communicate?
0: Yeah, it, it's it's funny because I think a lot about like the kind of Christian idea of vocation a lot mm-hmm. in the context of games, where I just feel like I am well suited to it and should do the thing that I'm well suited to. Mm, and then, right. and, and and the fact that you know I can I can derive a living from it and things like that, that is all wonderful too. But at a at a more core level, it is something that I feel like I can I can you know leverage all of my previous experiences doing. And and, and then you know also there is a kind of urgency to it too because i try to work on games that wouldn't exist if i weren't working on them and i think this is something that i always i always tell folks when when they're starting in games to think about you know if they're working on a game because they're trying to like beat somebody to market on a particular idea they need to contend with the fact that they are incidental to the existence of that idea sure and that can be okay uh, especially if their priorities are just to make a career in games, then like, yeah, go beat the person to market. But for, for myself, I try to find projects that I feel like the, I'm the only one who's going who's gonna to make it. When I when I delayed my dissertation to work on John Company, and my professor asked me why, one of the things I said was, if I don't finish this game about the indie company, I don't know if there's ever going to be a board game about this. Sure, project. right. And so I know that that's not going to save a life or anything, but it was this very small thing where like, the fact that any game happens is a real miracle. I, I, I never like can think very many projects ahead mm-hmm. because I'm really just interested in finishing the existing project because the fact that it gets done at all is just an absolute gift. And then, you, and then maybe you get to do one after that, right? And that makes me think that the, this whole process is so precious and that if you're in a position to make something, you should just absolutely make it and right. not worry too much about the ramifications.
1: Yeah. Cool. Well, I definitely relate to the concept that I feel like almost anything, any other thing I chose to do with my career, I would be worse at than yeah. what I'm doing now, you know, which which is kind of like, a, like well, maybe I am doing the right yeah, thing. Yeah, in the right spot. Um, and, uh, but yeah, no, it's a really interesting way to think of it. Like that, I was just struck by the phrase of like, you know, if you don't make an East India Company game, like mm-hmm. there may not be one, right? right. And, you know, I think, I think that a lot of people should think about that when they make games because. It's very tempting to make something very similar to what's out there because it's 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 safer, right? And there's lots of reasons to. But um, you know, we should all think about where we come from and our own unique experiences. And the the whole point is to like make that game that is unlikely that probably anyone else would make besides our, ourselves. Yeah, like, I think that's a good priority. It's absolutely right. I agree. I agree with myself. I've <laughs> I I heard,
0: I, I heard three. <laughs>
1: Cool. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to do this. Oh, yeah. This. My I goodness. is my pleasure. I think it went really well. Cool. Yeah, it was fun.